Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, November 30th, 843-661-0937. As we get closer and closer and closer, not to Christmas, getting back in the groove. Back it's it's kind of weird, man. You take four days off. Uh, well, you really take five days off. I mean, we take Wednesday off politics. It's Thursday, Thanksgiving, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You come back in Monday, and you start the countdown of Christmas. I mean, I told Rev, there are 20 shows between now and when we go uh, take a break for Christmas. We're off the week of Christmas trying to refresh our batteries, rejuvenate our souls. You appear to be counting those days backwards. Well, I mean, and, and if you think about it, there's a lot. There's less intensity about politics now than there usually is. Now, this year's a little bit different because we've got a runoff in, in Georgia that has a lot to do with whether Manchin can get reelected in West Virginia or not. Because if you've got a 51-seat, uh, if you don't count on the vice president to come over and break the tie every time, Manchin can have a lot of flexibility. And he's better positioned to win in 2024 than if he's the tie-breaking vote. You see where I'm headed? I mean, Manchin mm-hmm. can vote with the West Virginians if they've got 51 senators, but if they only got 50, they twist his arm and really lean on him hard and heavy. And it makes life more complicated for him once he runs in 2024. But speaking of Manchin, I mean, since the Democrats apparently twisted his arm, cut a deal, and then stabbed him in the back before, I wonder where his his mind is well, on what, that. What are his options? He could switch to Republican, well, I, I mean, guess. That's highly unlikely. I mean, I think I, I, Jim Justice, the governor of West Virginia, said Joe would, Joe's dad would come out of the grave and get him. You know what I mean? I mean, I think they're an old Democrat family uh, from the old Blue Dog Democrats and uh, the moderate, you know, rural-leaning um, Southern Democrat to some way. I want to go back real quick before we get into politics. Uh, enough of the Gamecocks and Tigers. I will do this. Somebody asked me yesterday, a good Clemson friend of mine, give me an honest accounting of what you think is wrong at Clemson. I said, not much. <laughs> I mean, not much. You want to tell you what's wrong at South Carolina? Uh, how long you got, you know what I mean? Or, or where, but, but anyway, he said, no, seriously, I mean, you keep up with the programs and you yeah, have friends kind of in the know in both universities. I mean, what do you think from the outside looking in before I did, I said, okay, tell me what you think the problem is with South Carolina. He said, you know what the problem is with South Carolina is too political. I mean, it's always allowed itself to be so involved in politics and, and, you know, Thomas Hunter and I were talking Wednesday during a break. When, when I mentioned that South Carolina is a, it's a different operation than Clemson. It has a law school. It has a med school. It has campuses, you know, all about and around the state. I mean, it's just a complicated university. It's a third bigger than, than Clemson. Clemson is kind of an independent island. They, um, they operate, I, I don't want to say isolated. They operate separate from all the politics of South Carolina, but they still depend on the state house to do, you know, bond issuance approvals and, and a lot of other things, but they have the advantage. I didn't say the luxury, the advantage of not having to be so um, integrated in the political system. Uh, once again, university of South Carolina, I read somewhere that 70% of all the graduates at Clemson who go to law school, go to the university of South Carolina law school. I mean, 30% go somewhere else. Some go to, uh, you know, Davidson or, I mean, some of the highfalutors go to, you know, Harvard or Yale or Georgetown, but the majority of Clemson graduates who aspire to be lawyers go, go to, you know, the University of South Carolina Law School. So they're kind of double degreed, you know, they're Tigers and they're Gamecocks. I mean, their loyalty normally lies with Clemson because that was their school of choice. During their college tenure, they decided to be a lawyer. They realized, you know, why would I want to drive that far to go to law school when there's one right here in my state? I mean, I think there's, um, I mean, we've heard the story. There's always a handful of students at USC Law wearing Clemson sweatshirts. 
you know, just to show I'm not really a Gamecock. I'm a Tiger. I'm doing this out of necessity. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that the University of South Carolina is a more complicated operation. Law school, med school, bigger school, um, satellite campuses, you know, thrown about, thrown about uh, around the – but, but I want to go back to because because and I said, you're right. I mean, that's that's the problem in South Carolina. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, as much as I'd like it to run as an efficient, streamlined, athletic operation, um, Clemson doesn't have to pay the women's basketball coach if she's uber successful. South Carolina kind of sort of does. Does that make any sense? I mean, it, it's, it's just a little more complicated. Because of those complications, it puts you in boxes at times. So if Dawn Staley were highly successful at Clemson in women's basketball, and basically demanded an unbelievable amount of money to remain, you know, real good in women's basketball, I think Clemson could more likely than South Carolina say thank you, but no thank you. You know, go to Maryland, go to Stanford, go to Notre Dame, go to UConn, follow Gino. You know what I mean? Do whatever it is. And South Carolina goes, we can't let her get away. I mean, she's uh, an African-American female, highly successful, um, you know, and and we didn't give her what she wanted. I just think there's some – and look, Hmm. there's nothing in writing – that says USC has to pay their women's basketball coach, you know, and Clemson does not. But I think you get the sense of what I'm saying. Here's what I noticed at Clemson. You ready? Dabo built a machine that has been as good as anybody in college football for a decade except Alabama. I mean, they're, they're, they're the second most successful college football program in college football over the past decade outside of Alabama. I don't like saying that, but it's true. I mean, it's real. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, you can't escape that, that fact. Um, Georgia may this year replace Clemson as the second most successful program. I mean, I think Georgia's the gold standard now, but over the past decade, you got Alabama one, you got Clemson two, you got Georgia three. If Georgia wins this year, then Georgia probably goes number two and Clemson goes to number three. It's still a pretty, a pretty swanky neighborhood. Yeah, not bad. I mean, they're, they're living in. But here's what I sense, Rev, and I don't know that I'm right here, but I mean, once again, my Clemson buddy said, well, I know you don't know, but just give me your hunch. My hunch is this, that Dabo built a machine based on this culture, this loyalty, this familial approach. We're family. We're in this together. We bleed orange. I mean, we believe in one another. We don't care what the SEC does. We don't care what the Big Ten does. We can't control what the SEC does. We know they got a buttload of money and going to get even more when Texas and Oklahoma come in. We can't control what the Big Ten does. We know when Southern California and UCLA come in, they're going to have more than anybody. So those two leagues have separated themselves from everybody else. But we can't do anything about that. What we can do is remain loyal to this culture, this commitment, this family, um, this belief that we're kind of um, we're a little bit unique and that we are so close-knitted and tightly bonded. Um, and then along comes the transfer portal and the NIL. And the transfer portal and NIL are what? I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I don't want to say it's the opposite or antithesis of, uh, of loyalty, but it kind of is, right? How loyal are you? I don't know. Depends on, depends on what? Yeah. Depends on how much money you got. You know, <laughs> um, you mean you'd leave that school to go to this other school? You mean you would, um, you would take the money and run to use a Steve Miller band um, line? Yeah, sure I would. Mm-hmm. I mean, the college kids, their families. So all of a sudden, Dabo's called in this, we built this program based on, you know, a set of criteria. And the set of criteria, it just didn't get tweaked. I mean, it got fundamentally turned upside down. Um, there have always been programs, and I think Clemson's one of these, that have figured out a way to advantage a kid under the table. I mean, I think most Clemson fans believe 
that they, they they get creative and well, I mean Alabama fans, Auburn <laughs> fans, Georgia fans, South Carolina fans. I mean, I'm not going to tell the story of Jadavion Clowney, but there's a story to be told. It's kind of um, it's, it's urban legend now at, at a Gamecock tailgate that there's five insiders and everybody thinks they know more than the other, and um, and everybody thinks they lo- know a little bit more about the Clowney deal, you know, than the other. And um, is it all true? Probably not. But every big time football program in America has a unique ability to entice a kid to their program, despite what the rules were. I mean, it's creativity. Um, Bear Bryant used the, the African-American church. I mean, he would always funnel money to, to needy families. The needy family always had a kid who was 6'3", 230, if you run like the wind. You know, they never had a needy family of a kid who, you know, wanted to go get a, a scholarship in science. It was always the family of a kid who was 6'3", 230, and could play linebacker in the NFL as an 18-year-old. So, I mean, there's always been schools that did that. But the NIL and transfer portal made loyalty less important, made family less important, made culture less important. So Dabo and his machine are now looking at a different set of criteria, a different set of rules and and responsibilities, and I just don't think he likes it. Uh, Once again, we have had an enormous – I mean, Clemson's always been good in football. They've never been this good. I mean, two national championships – you know, a couple of other appearances in the Final Four playoff. I mean, just in the running every year, every preseason, when you list the six or eight teams that you think are going to be competitive for the college football playoff, it's Clemson. So they build a machine. And I'm not saying the machine is being devastated, but, but the machine's having trouble adjusting to this new reality. And, and once again, Dabo has hired coaches who have a resume of what? Winning championships or being loyal to the Tiger program? Believing in the culture. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Um, you got an offensive coordinator. Is he a great coordinator? I don't know, but he bleeds orange. He believes in that um, in that philosophy of culture and family and we're in this together. And once again, I'm not a Clemson fan. I haven't been to Clemson since 2012, 2013. I'm trying to think of the, the odd year, even year. Uh, we got a Clemson in an even year, so that would have been 12, maybe 14. I don't think I went in 14. I know I went in 10 and 12. Um and have never been mistreated at Clemson. Have always been treated, you know, very, very decently, if that's a word. <laughs> um, but but once again, as an outsider looking in, it looks to me like the the priorities of the program are in contrast to the mood of college football today. NIL. What is that about? Money. It's not about under the table. It's not about you know helping needy families via the church. It's about, you know, how much are we going to give this kid if he decides to go? What kind of arrangement can we get for him? And Dabo doesn't like that. And then the transfer portal. The transfer portal is just the opposite of what Dabo preaches. Make a commitment and stick with it. The transfer portal basically says, made a commitment, you don't like it, switch. You know, find another team. Find a better deal. And, and I think Shane Beamer has not, I mean, I don't know that Shane likes it, but I think he's accepted it. He's embraced it. He has said, okay, there's this wide receiver at James Madison that probably should have gotten an SEC offer, but for whatever reason, he fell through the cracks. I'm going to get that kid, and I'm going to convince him that playing your last two years at James Madison are not going to get the attention of pro scouts like it would if you were to come to the SEC and play against you know the best defensive backs in America. Juice Wells is a transfer portal guy. He's the best receiver South Carolina had. And the reason he came is I mean, the, the Gamecock coaching staff went to him and said, look, I mean, you're going to you're going to have a great year where you are, but if you can prove yourself against the defensive backs that we play every week, your draft stock goes through the roof, and you all of a sudden have generational wealth. That's where we end up, generational wealth. 
I mean, every one of these kids who's a four or five star believes that at some point in time, they're going to have the opportunity to provide for their family generational wealth. Are, are you more likely to do that in the, uh, in the Mac or the SEC or Big Ten? And I, I just think, once again, I mean, I'm not saying Debo has to embrace it because he's already, I mean, he's a man of accomplishment now. But I think moving forward, th- this contest between culture and, and you know, c- kind of a um, the, the, the system he's built that uh, kind of um, prioritizes this loyalty, this we bleed orange, um, I think it's in contrast to where college football is headed. And, I mean, Debo's smart. He'll adjust. But, but he seems reluctant and agreeing that, you know, all of this investment I made and all of this belief I have is becoming a little bit secondary to the transfer portal, the NIL, the new model that is college football. Combine that with hiring a bunch of yes men. I mean, it, say, it seems to me, once again, for the guys I'm looking in, that Debo has hired people that he knows will be loyal to him, his belief, his calls, his priorities, but are they good coaches or not? And I think there's reason to be suspicious about some of their coaches, and, and are they high caliber? I mean, I'm not saying they're not high quality. I mean, I'm sure they're good people, and they believe in that law. I mean, they, they, they're convinced that, you know, Dabo's way is the right way. And, and I just think you got to be careful surrounding yourself with people who believe that you make no mistake. The majority of people coaching at Clemson today have a debt of gratitude to Dabo Sweeney, not because of just hiring or giving them a job, but, but you know, promoting them in their lives to a place where they have these sorts of opportunities. You need some no men. I mean, you need somebody on that staff that says, no, Dabo, that's stupid. Dabo, this quarterback we got is as good as you think he is. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean, Dabo? We got to get a lot better in the passing game. I mean, we can't be one-dimensional. I've not heard any of that. I mean, I've not heard a criticism. I've heard the Clemson coaching staff, heard the OC and the head coach over uh, since the South Carolina game basically say, DJ's not the problem. The passing game's not the problem. Well, as a Gamecock fan, I don't know if DJ's the problem, but the passing game's the problem. I mean, it was a very unsophisticated, elementary passing game, and uh, it was kind of the, it was the, it was the ticket to the Gamecocks being able to upset Clemson by their inability to get receivers open and a quarterback who could execute plays getting it in said receiver's hand. Let's go to the phone. Here is Breeze. Good morning. You know, that's going to destroy one of the very things that I respected and liked about the Clemson program. And no longer will have that wholesomeness. Before long, they're just going to have to start signing these players to contracts just like the NFL. You're right, Breeze. That, that's where we're headed. And I, I don't like it either, yeah. but it is what it is. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if you'll get that. You know, because when I was a kid, I used to have that loyalty for a team, and because I, I knew Roger Stallback or Terry Bradshaw would be there every Sunday. You know, you get a little loyalty for your college team because you you knew that Jeff Grants or whatever is going to be there every Saturday. Okay, but what I wanted to ask you, kid, um, I've been reading about this lost stuff on Elon Musk, and if you were him, see, he's losing all of these woke corporations that were paying the bills around there and i believe i've heard that his annual law payment is a billion dollars now i've heard some people say he's intentionally trying to bankrupt the company so he can pay less and i don't know that doesn't make a lot of sense but maybe he the hell knows of these guys but what would you do yeah because he's getting he's getting subscribers but what would you do to get advertisers? In other words, how would you fight it back against Apple and um, Google and these big corporations 
that have withdrawn their uh, advertising from him. Because, and, you know, and if you think about it, what is what are these corporations saying to you and me? You know, they want us to keep our, keep our Apple phone, but the minute we get a platform that represents our ideals and allows free speech, the people that we buy our phone from quit advertising with them. Or the people we buy our cars or trucks from quit advertising with them. Or the people we buy our food from quit advertising with them. Or our clothes from quit advertising with them. I mean, what would you do if you were Elon, I guess, maybe to rally the troops? Uh, what could we do to keep Because if we lose Twitter, then there you go. We have that, you know, that was a great. Everybody would be sitting there saying, boy, y'all sure was a good fight on Elon trying to do for us. And then, of course, we have, well, what do we do to help him? So That's kind of interesting. Thank, thank, thank you, Breeze. That. You know, it's the story of the day. I mean, it's the story of our times. And, and it really is so much deeper than what Breeze is touching on here. We, we live in an America today where corporations gain favor of the government to make their life more profitable. I mean, it's, it's almost oxymoronic. I mean, it really is. What do you mean you get closer to the government to make your life better? Yeah, if you're Apple, you look at the government not as a foe, but rather a friend. I'm going to partner with the government. And it's, I mean, we, we use the terminology woke corporations, but it's really subservient to government. I'm going to agree that democratic activism, liberal activism within the bowels of government are going to be part of my DNA. I'm going to allow Apple to be a somewhat of a conduit or a transistor of um, we, we call it wokeism. I get that, but it's complacency. I mean, there's a complacency that some of these multinational media organizations have with the government. And I'm not saying they're one of the same. I mean, I'm not saying CNN is Apple and Apple is CNN, but there's a coordinating between those two entities. And hang on to that. I know we got to take a break, but, but it is, I mean, it's the story of our day. I mean, it really and truly is. And I could give example after example after example of governments creating plans and programs and policies that punish liberty and freedom. And Apple blesses that. And to, excuse me, before Elon bought Twitter, Twitter was a big part of that. I said yesterday, and I'll say it again, it's not the debate. It's the unwillingness to have the debate. Let's not have a debate about conservatism and liberalism. Let's not have a debate about rugged individualism or collectivism. Let's just stop those people who believe in those fundamentals. Because if you're if you're a government official, the most threatening person to you is somebody who will die for their liberties and freedoms, somebody who will fight for their liberties and freedoms. So why wouldn't you make their lives complicated? Hold on to that. Take a break. Back in just a minute. What would I do if I were Elon Musk? Probably would have bought Twitter. I'd probably <laughs> cash in my Tesla stock and go to the um, go to the mountains or go to the beach. I'd spend six months at the mountains, six months at the beach. Yeah, it would but, drive somebody but to that's do what, what, he, I mean, what he did. That, he is what he is. I mean, he's an entrepreneur extraordinaire. I mean, he's a guy that, that always thinks there's something around the next corner that, that makes humanity better. I mean, I think he's obsessed with, um, with, with the notion of a responsibility he has to mankind. I think people like Musk, I mean, I don't know this. I don't know what's wrong with Clemson. I mean, there ain't much wrong with him. It's a little something is. I don't know what's, what, make, what makes Elon Musk or someone like him um, get up, motivated, ready to go to work every single day. I mean, how, how motivated would you be if you knew you could sell a, uh, a share of stock and get a billion dollars in your bank account? I mean, who can't live the rest of their lives on a billion bucks? But, I mean, he's leveraged and he's got debt. I mean, he's got a lot of moving parts and balls in the air. I get all that. But, I mean, when, when the dust settled, Elon Musk could liquidate and do anything he wanted to do for the rest of his life. 
I don't know what that number is. I mean, is he worth $100 billion or a billion dollars? I don't know. But but if he liquidated, paid all of his debts, sold all of his stock, you know, paid all of his taxes, all of his whatever, capital gains, I mean, I would imagine he's still in a place where he could live anywhere he wanted to, anyhow he wanted to, fly on any jet he chose to, ride on any yacht he chose to, but that's not the way Elon Musk is wired. I mean, the guy, along with Peter Thiel, so PayPal in his 30s, in his early 30s, what did he do with that billion bucks? He invested it in SpaceX and Tesla. Uh, remember what he said, I was down to my last $50 million and I could invest it all in one or the other and make sure it's sustained, but the other one would die or I could roll the dice and invest half in SpaceX and half in, I mean, he was having credit issues. He was having debt issues. I mean, the banks were, they, they financed a lot of his debt and they, they needed to be paid and he only had so much money. And, um, and instead of, um, basically choosing the, um, choosing one over the other, he chose both and it worked out and here he is. You know, the richest man in the world, one of the most powerful men on the planet. I have no idea what makes Elon Musk tick, but it ain't about going to the beach. It's not about going to the mountains. It's not about, you know, growing a beard, smoking weed, and just doing whatever you use. Listen to Jimmy Buffett music and do what you want to do. I mean, there's kind of a romantic uh, lifestyle you and I and a lot of others think about. Man, if I had a billion bucks, I wouldn't worry about anything. Well, unless you had an IQ off the chart. You know what I mean? And you felt like you had some contribution to make to mankind. I mean, I think that stirs his soul, but I don't know uh, what makes Musk tick. I do know this. Um, he has given, he has breathed a breath of fresh air into the idea or notion of liberty and freedom and personal expression. I mean, he is one of our most hopeful advocates for what we believe America stands for. Um, it's kind of interesting that he's not a native born American. Um, he's a, he's an immigrant here. He's um, a man of enormous accomplishment. Uh, we, we know he's a, an incredibly smart and visionary uh, person. He ain't perfect. He's made some mistakes in his life, I'm sure, uh, personally and professionally. But but Breeze asked the question, you know, what 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 Musk brings to the table, basically, is, um, I mean, if I were Elon Musk, what, what do I bring to the table? Well, I mean, I bring a, um, I bring a rebellious streak. I bring a lot of money. I bring the ability to be somewhat fearless at times in my life. And, um, and you know, th this is not a, I'm not just trying to go straight to the cathedral, but I mean, it really is. I mean, I think the, the, the debate we're having in America today is the debate we're not having in America today. We're having the debate without having the debate because nobody wants to have the debate. But the debate is whether or not we're going to have a, uh, a contest of ideas, whether we're going to allow people who believe in limited government, who believe in lower taxes, who believe in the personal freedoms and liberties, um, taking precedent over government controlled or government orthodoxes or, or government edicts. Or, or that, see, we're not allowed to have that debate. Talk, think about the two, two or three major macros in America today. Major macro, kind of the same thing. A um, bit redundant there. Um, you got climate. You got COVID. I mean, I, I wrote those two, two down during the break when Breeze was talking about what would you do. So 11,000 people got deplatformed from Twitter when they said things questioning whether or not the vaccine was working. I mean, imagine that now. I mean, this is prior to Elon buying Twitter. 11,000 people from 20 uh, to 21 got deplatformed for suggesting in a free speechy kind of way, you know, the First Amendment, remember that, in a free speechy kind of way, they got deplatformed, shut down, not allowed to be a part of the debate or conversation because they had questions about whether the COVID uh, vaccine. Another 30,000 People were deplatformed because they um, said we needed to find out where the origin is. You know, could it could it have come from the Wuhan virology lab? So, so you got forty-one to three thousand accounts. 
that were shut down, deplatformed, not allowed to participate in the debate. You see, Twitter decided, and Apple decided, and I mean, the, the international conglomerates decided early on Pfizer would have been one of these, and they got a lot at risk. But I mean, all these companies, along with the government, basically said, we're not going to have a debate about COVID. It didn't, it didn't emanate from a uh, virology lab in Wuhan, and the vaccine works. Well, now we find out that there's, I mean, if you had uh, a trial, where did COVID originate? There would be far more evidence that says it originated in the Wuhan virology lab um, than, you know, some, some uh, human-animal interaction. But we weren't allowed to have that debate. 41,000 people tried to have that debate. Oh, hell no. Not on Twitter, you aren't. You see where I'm headed? Mm-hmm. So, so the most dangerous part of culture in America today is the unwillingness the, the masters of the universe have, the, 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 the non-interest they have in allowing these debates. Uh, the, the older story than COVID is climate. I mean, there's been over 100,000 Facebook and Twitter accounts you know, made inactive because they question climate science. They have serious concerns about what we're doing to the economy uh, because th- th- there's almost this one-size-fits-all belief about you know, the climate. We're going to basically, um, I mean, if you think about it, we're going to decarbonize the largest economy in the world on, on some hokey science that we're not even debating. We're not allowed right. to have Well, the science is settled, that remember? President Obama said that. Yeah, he said that, what, in 2008 or 9 yeah. or 10, you know, a, a decade ago or so. But I mean, the, the science is not settled. It's nowhere near settled. I mean, there's a great debate to be had about man-made climate change. There's a great debate to be had about um, decarbonizing the largest economy on the planet, but we're not going to have that debate. See, Rev, it's easy to win an argument when you tell the other person to shut up. And that's what we've allowed to happen. And corporate America, uh, once again, this goes back to the complacency with government, the getting bad. The, the best way to be profitable and successful in private enterprise today is not get on the government's bad side. I mean, that's dangerous. L- listen to that, guys. The best way to stay profitable and sustaining in business is to stay on government's good side to do what government says to do to partner with government to to embrace the non-debate of climate to embrace the non-debate of covid um i mean you got a president i wrote it down this morning i mean he's somewhat of a um i mean i think biden's morally bankrupt i know he's a simple-minded man I mean, there's no doubt about that i mean you don't mistake in joe biden for elon musk do you or peter <laughs> Thiel? i mean you can like musk or not you can like Thiel or not but nobody doubts their ability to comprehend issues that are very complex and, and multi-layered. I mean, it, Biden's a very small-minded politician. Is he morally bankrupt? I mean, I think China really puts on full demonstration um, I mean, his unwillingness to advocate for liberties and freedoms for people around the world. I mean, that's always been a calling of the U.S. president, right? When people are fighting for their freedoms, so. they got to believe the U.S. president ain't going to send troops every day, but we're going to express our support of people out there fighting for their individual liberties and freedoms, and the small-minded politician and morally bankrupt man that Joe Biden is has decided to do what? Just kind of um, stay quiet. Now, John Kirby, there's an article by Andy McCarthy in the National Review this morning, and, and he basically says that Kirby's a smart man. I mean, Kirby's been around the block, and he says, unlike the other um, you know, uh, administration members or administrative members of the Biden administration, he understands what needs to be said in support of China but the American government has refused to speak out in support of the uh, the uprising in China. Why? Because there's probably some um, moral bankruptness involved in this. How did Joe Biden got fi- get filthy rich? 
Um, I mean, a lot of this is China, you know, business interactions. Let's go to the phone. Rick and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Hey, Rick. Um, just like to throw out a little contrarian there, like I'm prone to do. Sure. But the last time I looked, Facebook, Twitter, these social media companies are private businesses. And I would say if you base, you know, your platform, your income on the use of a privately owned business, you're at their mercy. Um, if you don't like it, start your own. But I don't believe in government regulation. I don't believe the government should come in and tell my business the rules I need to have. It's mine. If y'all don't like it, you know, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Start your own truth social or something. But to me, that's freedom. Rick, is Duke, is Duke Power a private business? Is Duke Energy a private business? Um, it's a mixed business due to the, oh, uh, what? Oh, they're the, regulated, right? It's a utility. They're regulated. They got antitrust yeah, and, and a lot of monopoly. Yeah. Pro- I mean, it, it, it's complicated, but, but there's a lawyer's debate to be had. But should Duke Energy as a private business be allowed to provide power for me, but not for Rev? Because Rev's got a Trump flag in his yard. Duke Energy signed a devil's deal with the government. And because, you know, we wanted everybody to be able to have electricity. If you live way out in Pamplico in the middle of the woods, they can't charge you more per kilowatt hour than they do for me living in an apartment. But can they refuse? Can they refuse to provide me service? Should they be allowed no. to refuse to provide me service? In a perfect world, there would be competition, and yes, they should. If it was truly a private entity, uh, let, 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 let's go there. Because, but I, I don't disagree with your your premise. I mean, philosophically, you've listened to me long enough. I mean, I got this libertarian bias about me. In fact, that was the argument they had uh, for conservatives when our voices yes, weren't being heard, and when Twitter was deplatforming and, these and, positions. And, and, and Rick's making a valid point. It's a privately held company. I mean, if they choose to shut down conservatism, that's their right. But, but Rick, is it time to 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 consider whether or not? These social media companies that have enormous influence on the public discourse should be treated as a monopoly, should be treated as a as utility. a public utility. You know, there's to me there's a difference in being able to spout an opinion on Twitter and being able to get an open power line run out to your place. I don't I see it as kind of apples and oranges there. I see your point, I do, but to me, you know, when you're talking about freedom or lack thereof, when you're talking about, no, we need to stop these privately owned companies. I mean, if I own a restaurant and I say no MAGA hats allowed, I should be allowed to do that. But you should be able to publicize it, call my suppliers and say, hey, this guy's a bigot. He's prejudiced against Republicans. Whatever, you know, use whatever. You can harm me economically. But, no, I don't think the government should have a right to come into my business and tell me you have to serve these people. Good deal. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. That's not necessarily, I mean, Rick said a contrarian opinion. I, I mean, I agree with the majority of what he said. I mean, I wish we'd lived in a world where government controlled itself and didn't um, create conflict within the private sector. And how many times did you hear, go start your own Twitter? Yeah. When, when but before Elon got there. Well, stick there. I mean, Rick makes a, I mean, that's an interesting debate to have. And we could do this, I mean, all day long. I mean, that, and this is kind of what J.D. Vance suggested. There are, going to, there are going to be moments in time when those of us who philosophically believe in limited government, empowerment of the private sector, are going to find ourselves conflicted. I mean, I, you know, I stay there. 
because I have this fundamental philosophical belief of limited government, but, but I see one-sided government. You know what I mean? I see the media being so monolithic. I see academia being so monolithic. I, I see the, um, the, the, I mean, how, how many conservatives, excuse me, how many liberals have been shut out of me, uh, Twitter? I mean, Twitter's a liberal company, and, and what Rick is basically arguing is they have a right to be a liberal company. Yeah, they're a liberal company. They have an absolute right to be liberal. Well, I mean, all of a sudden, they're not liberal, and the White House says we're going to pay close attention to what Twitter does, how much misinformation. So to suggest that they're not already, you know, uh, kind of the overreach of government, the heavy hand of government, no, they're already doing that. In fact, um, the black lesbian said <laughs> a couple of days ago that we're paying close attention to what Twitter does yep. as Keep it relates to misinformation. Um, take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, it does put conservatives in somewhat of a conflicting position when philosophically you believe that government should leave the private sector alone until the private sector does things that, you know, basically impede your First Amendment rights. I mean, does the government have a responsibility to protect the citizens and its ability to speak, you know, freely as they see fit? Um, should Twitter, should the government force Facebook to allow me to put a post on or Twitter to allow me to tweet something that, um, contradicts what the public what the government wants the public narrative to be, and I keep going to COVID and climate. I mean, to be, I mean, election was kind of a brush fire, but COVID and climate, what were something that we really saw um, opinionated people not be allowed to express their opinions, however credible they may or may and not have doctors been. Doctors and researchers, and, and, and I, yeah, but the Robert Malone, the guy who invented the exactly. mRNA science, you know, behind the vaccine, or not single handedly, he was part of a team that led to the uh, creation of a vaccine. And I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if it's, um, I mean, is it monolistic or a mono, are we dealing with mo monopolies? Are we dealing with um, antitrust? Are we dealing with, I mean, you got the uh, the Sherman Act, you got the Federal Trade Commission, I mean, there are a lot of different moving parts here. Um, I mean, the, the, the Federal Trade Commission Act, I mean, it was basically to um, stop price fixing and mergers and acquisitions that led to monopolies, um, what is the government's responsibility in protecting the, the rights of individuals? Should a, I mean, to, to, um, to, to Mike and Rick's debate, should a restaurant be allowed to say, you know, no white people here, no Republicans can dine here? Um, that, once again, libertarians believe no. I mean, a, a guy should have a right to put a sign in the restaurant that says that. But what is the government's role in you know, affording you the rights the Constitution reserves um, for you. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, gentlemen. We're talking uh, with the last caller about Todd's video and the nasty button on um, <clears throat> on Facebook. Um, week before last, a number of friends and I attempted to share a Daily Mail newspaper article. And the article was simply, hey, you're not going to believe this. CBS News has now admitted that the Hunter Biden laptop is real. So it wasn't even a story about the Hunter Biden laptop. It was just a story confirming that CBS News had uh, decided that it was a real story and, and that they passed on it two years ago for no reason. Well, about five of us attempted to share it the same morning because we shared the story by text back and forth two of us were warned your post has been removed don't try to share stuff like this again one was suspended for two days and two of us were suspended for 30 days on facebook for attempting to uh share a news story 
Now, um, <clears throat> Congressman Duncan and I have been friends since before he was elected in 2010 to go to Washington. And, uh, and I sent him a text and uh, told him what happened. He said, send me screenshots. And I did. And the next day, my suspension was released. My post was put back on. And the other people that were suspended with me were released and their posts were put back on. And it was simply a news story. So these people have the ability to censor anything we put out there, regardless of if it's fact or opinion or if it's a legitimate news story from a legitimate news source. And uh, that, that's my comment this morning. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. You know, when you when you look at some of the antitrust laws, and, and I, look, I, I know a little bit about it. I don't know much. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legally um, I've been in business, and I understand to some degree monopolies and mergers and acquisitions and and price fixing. I mean, I refer to you know cartels. I mean, the education cartel. I mean, there's some language in there in the Federal Trade Commission. Some of the documentation. I mean, you, you got two major um, pieces of legislation, what we call antitrust statutes, the Sherman Act, and um, that would have been 1900, early, early. No, nah, probably been 1890. 1895, 1900, somewhere thereabout. And then later you had the um, the Federal Trade Commission Act. That would have been uh, pre-depression for some stupid reason. I mean, I remember some of this. But um, but, but the, the, what, what we're basically asking or uh, debating, questioning is, I mean, the, 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 an, the notion of antitrust laws, from my understanding, Rev, but this is me as a, uh, as a non-lawyer, a layperson, is that... Um, Controlling economic powers on behalf of the consumer. In other words, if uh, if American Airline and United Airline were to try and buy one another, uh, give me another example. I mean, Delta, Delta and American. I mean, didn't, didn't Delta merge with? Um, I mean, didn't United and American merge and became sure. like United American Airlines or something? So if Delta and United or Delta and American were to merge and create such a a huge enterprise. That if Dave Baker wants to fly to California, that there's not much choice. I mean, odds are he's going to have to get on one of their one of their uh, planes, and instead of it being six hundred dollars, it's six thousand dollars. Does the government have um, a uh, a responsibility? I mean, they've got a right to do what they choose to do if they pass laws. I mean, we've seen and learned that the hard way. But but because it's um, do they have a right to monitor police curtail economic power on behalf of the public interest? The consumer, Dave Baker, doesn't need to pay $6,000. You can't rationalize, justify it costing that much to go from here to California. 600 is kind of a fair price. But all of a sudden, you've only got one airline. And the one airline, but if Dave's going to fly, he flies. And he flies that airline and that airline alone. So so the notion of antitrust has always been to, to basically, one of the, I mean, I'm not saying all it does, but to stop some of these mergers and acquisitions that, um, that lessen competition, create um, monopoly forces in the marketplace is twitter a monopoly is facebook a monopoly have they reached monopoly status is it time we treat them as a public utility i mean i'm just throwing this out there uh i'm a libertarian leaning republican so i have a lot of problems in saying yeah government do this and government do that and government do something else but jd vance made the comment during his campaign what do we conservatives do when we have the levers of government uh under our control I mean, when we're in charge, I mean, they're not today, but there will be a day that Republicans have control of the House, have control of the Senate, and have a, um, a president who's, you know, shares that similar worldview. So, so what do we do when 
that happens. Do we bust up Twitter? I mean, Twitter's different now because Twitter's owned by, you know, a free speech absolutist. How many, how many, how many liberal leaning activists is Elon Musk censored? I mean, how many, how many people who believe that, um, COVID was a bat and, you know, some sort of animal and a human. I mean, I don't know that Musk has censored any of those opinions. I, heard of I mean, I read every day, you know, man-made climate change, man-made climate change. I mean, I don't think Musk has, uh, you know, disallowed them from being a part of the debate. I mean, Musk is somebody who professes to be a free speech absolutist. I mean, I think he's one of the few guys who believe it's okay to yell fire in a crowded theater. I mean, that's kind of his thing. And he's um, he's put his money where his mouth is. But when it comes to Twitter, I mean, Elon's not, I mean, he's from my understanding, I've I've on Twitter every day. I've not seen, I mean, I see just as much climate change activism as I ever did. I see just as much COVID activism as I ever did. But now you see people who say BS. Right. You know, it's much more entertaining. It's it's far more interesting. I mean, you're like, okay, there's another side to this climate change story. There's another side to this COVID story. There's another side to to the selection integrity story. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hello, Larry. Good morning. I don't know if I have an answer yet, <laughs> but I think that there's a way to frame the question that maybe we're not framing it properly. You know, we talk about the government, we talk about private enterprise, and then we talk about, you know, the consumers. And, and we need to ask ourselves, you know, part of the reason that men come together and institute governments is to do things that are for the common good. And the common good has always been a very big undergirding legal term, especially when you go to, like, the Supreme Court, you know, uh, is affirmative action, does it support the common good? You know, does gay marriage support the common good? It it kind of is an ever-present theory. So the question I think that needs to be asked is, does... Do, do these platforms contribute or are they affecting or are they affected by the notion of what is for the common good? And is it for the common good? And now now the people that are trying to shut everything down would say, oh, yes, absolutely. It serves the common good that anybody who disagrees with me is made to shut up. But we've often... You know, Americans have held that what is actually best for the common good is that in the marketplace of ideas, free speech would be allowed to to prevail. So it's not, is it a private enterprise and are you allowed to regulate? Yes, every private enterprise in the United States of America is regulated, every single one of them. So libertarians, get off the bus. I hate to say that, but that's just kind of how that goes. That is not what the United States operates on. It's not the way we ever operated. So if you want to reshape America and say we're never going to regulate another private entity, you've got a way bigger job ahead of you than dealing with Facebook and Twitter. But that being said, the question is how much regulation are they allowed? And is the government breaking its fiduciary, so to speak, responsibility or the promise that it's made to its population that it is not promoting the public good, it's promoting its own good? And does that good change depending on who is in office? But then the next part of that is, well, society's part of the common good. And if society if it has decided that the society it wants is a society that squelches free debate, well, there's not a lot that a minority of people who believe in free speech can do about that except appeal to the Constitution and hope that the Supreme Court upholds their minority right. 
I don't know that we live in a society that will even do that, necessarily. But I do think that you could argue that they are monopolistic, that when the web search, when you go to look for a video for something, that the webs, the website that you look on points you to a website that the company that owns both entities owns. Does that make sense? Sure it does. Makes perfect if, sense. If I look for a video, Google is going to point me to YouTube. YouTube is squelching free debate, but I cannot get an alternative wherever I go. It's just going to keep pointing me back to that. And I don't think, I think that's monopolistic. And I do think that America has always been anti-monopolistic. And need to be. That's a lot, Larry. Thank you very much. And if you, I mean, the Larry's right about regulation. I mean, when you read through it, I mean, I've got it here in front of me. The Sherman Act of 1890. I said it was 1895. 1890, the Clayton Act of 1940, the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914. I mean, all of those acts really serve, I mean, price fixing and monopolies. I mean, that's what the, the notion. I mean, those were regulatory actions. I mean, the government said we can't allow monopolies. I mean, monopolies will price fix. They'll gouge. They'll take advantage of the consumer. It is in the common good's best interest. I mean, we have a responsibility not not to government, I mean, excuse me, not to business, but the people who we represent. I mean, a congressman goes to Washington to do what? Represent the interest of however many people voted for him or even those who didn't vote for him. So to suggest that we don't regulate free enterprise is just, I mean, we've been doing that since nearly the founding of, of America and, and when it comes to antitrust laws, it was in the late 1800s, early 1900s that we began uh, becoming aware of cartels and monopolies and, and, and price fixing and mergers and acquisitions. And, and the government said that that is not good for the common good. I mean, as Larry's point, I mean, the, the common good says that the consumer can be taken advantage of. If, if we allow these monopolies and we allow these uh, mergers and acquisitions, and um, so, so, yeah, I mean, we got a Federal Trade Commission. We got, uh, th- there's an antitrust division within the Department of, um, of Justice. So we've dedicated a lot of resources as, as, a, as the American government in, you know, oversight and, and regulatory regulation of, and, and it's really collection. I mean, it's kind of a collection of, of federal laws um, and it's to promote competition. The point I'm trying to make about Twitter and some of these other social media companies, it, I think I'm not explaining it well, but it's not, it's not that I'm not bothered by somebody who disagrees with me about climate change. I mean, I think if somebody out there believes that the year 2035 is the, the year the planet explodes because man's been irresponsible, I mean, that person should be allowed to believe that. Sure. They should be allowed to Say express it. that. I mean, if you think that it's indisputable that COVID began at a wet market in Wuhan, you know, because a bat came in contact with a human, you should certainly be entitled to believe that. And I don't know that you're wrong. I mean, it ain't 2035 yet. I don't know that the planet doesn't explode in 2035 because of what man has done and it's irresponsible burning of fossil fuels and, and, and carbonizing the economy. I don't know that to be true, but let's have the debate. Twitter has decided prior to Elon getting there, previous of Elon getting there, we're not going to have that debate. Facebook consistently decides we're not going to have um, that debate. So the people responsible for disseminating information and allowing the debate and dialogue just simply don't allow the debate and dialogue, and that is not in, in the public good. I mean, it, the public is better served when there's a pro and a con. When, when Dave Baker says that Ken Art's crazy if he doesn't believe COVID came from a wet market, and I'm able to tweet back, no, Dave Baker's a bigger fool than I am because he thinks it started in a virology lab. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, to me, that's the essential. 
of America. And don't forget, there's an entire other layer of this when the FBI goes to your social media partner and says, oh, you can't put that story out there, a that, story that, that ended up being true. That's pretty bizarre. I mean, that yeah. to me, that's the that's the other leg here. You know what I mean? When when I, when when the FBI decided that Facebook had such a Facebook and Twitter, social media in general, had such an ability that they went and 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 basically leaned on a private enterprise to squelch a story, to tamp down the energy behind a story, to potentially affect the outcome of an election. I mean, wow. I mean, who? If you're not freaked out by that then find another station. I'm serious because um, I'm going to make you mad every every single second of every single day. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, you off to a great start as always. But uh, I think I think a more serious threat. Now, it's serious when they take these things religiously and there's a, a party line or a catechism you have to follow or you'll be shunned or – you will be uh, put in stocks or thrown out of the club or thrown out of the tribe to fend for yourself. Uh, that's that's a very dangerous thing, and that's a lot of power for these uh, uh, social media uh, machines to have. And these things, all of them, were generated by what was the War Department, Defense Department. They generated the interstate. They generated the Internet as part of our uh, defense mechanism. And these things that turned out to be great commercial engines as well. But they, uh, but you have a bunch of people out there that want to have a certain party line, and it's a, it, it's a religious thing. And if you deviate from that and ask uh, questions or have independent views on things, uh, you're thrown out of the tribe, no questions asked. It's like boom, you're off. And uh, and at the same time, they have this thing, uh, Google, this premier search engine that uh, regulates what you get to look at. What you look at first, you have to go down through 200, 300 picks before you can get to the core pick that you were trying to get information on. And that 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 is just wrong, and that's wrong, and uh, that kind of thing needs to be stopped. That's the equivalent of me. I've got I've got a little bit of property out in the country, and I decide I want to put a trailer out there so I can uh, watch over my fields a little bit better. Well, that then there's a situation there. Well, uh, I don't think we're going to put up a power pole for you because you're growing the wrong crops. Well, that's just not right, and you have a and in the in the meantime, you have an entire political party that's dedicated to. They're like a. They claim to be the fire department, but they have a certain number of people in there that are going around setting fires all over this place, creating crises. Like for example, our uh, diesel fuel crisis, and uh, and uh, and then they uh, claim, well, we're here to put out that that fire i don't know how it got started but and why we stopped drilling for oil but uh, we have these magical unicorns that are going to come through and they're going to provide electricity for everybody uh free of charge well that's just nonsense thank and you mike I appreciate that 843-661-0937 our number got to take a break stay on schedule got a fox news guest here at about seven thirty. pay some bills 
Back in a minute. Be careful with people who think a lot of their own opinions. <laughs> <laughs> they end up with radio shows lecturing um, just nonsense for four hours a day, 20 hours a week. I mean, that's what we do here at Wake Up Carolina. Um, occasionally, we have a guest on. Um, I'll give up my airtime to people I feel deserve. How, how generous have of you. some of the airtime taken. Um, author of the newly released and critically acclaimed book, People Over Politics. Got my interest when I read that, People Over Politics. Anthony G is with us. Anthony, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So the point you're trying to make in your book, I've not read it, but I did read some of the uh, synopsis summary, is that we're not as divided as it may seem to be. How, how did you conclude that? And uh, and kind of what motivated you to write a book about maybe we aren't quite as divided as we're led to believe? Well, it's interesting. So I, I wrote the book because I ran for Congress myself in New Jersey back in 2018. And, you know, I made a pledge at that time that I would not engage in any of the divisive rhetoric. I just wanted to hold true to the substance of the issues. And when I had conversations with many people in our area, I realized that most of the voting public, that's really what they wanted to hear as well, right? It was less about the divisive rhetoric. So when you talk to the people and you get past the news cycles and the internet uh, and so forth, then you realize that we not, are not really that far apart. And the, the other startling revelation that I had is when you think about progress in our, in our country, there's a lot of false narratives out there. They'll on the one hand, you'll hear that all Republicans are racist or that all Democrats are socialists. And quite frankly, both are incredibly false, right? When you think about Eisenhower in his presidency, right, he passed the first civil rights uh, legislation of 1957. That's something that's often overlooked. But that was a Republican who started that. He also put in place the civil rights division of the DOJ, right? Following on to that, you had the Democrats came in place and put in the Voting Rights Act of 1964, etc., which built upon what he had already started. So my point is simply that progress is going to come from both parties, not from any one party. Yeah, but when I'm going to stay there for a second, I mean, there's an old analogy. I mean, I too have served in public office and run for office. So I've been up close and personal to some of that. Um, I don't know some of that uh, energy that you're talking about. But but there's there's an old analogy given that you can take a a jar. And put a thousand red ants and a thousand black ants, and they get along just fine until somebody shakes the jar, and then they start killing one another. And then I've always argued that we, I mean, it, it, the the political hierarchy in America today is advantaged by convincing you not to like me, me not to like you. You're angry with me, I'm angry with you, and we aren't angry at the political uh, what I call the hierarchy that that are taking advantage of the division. If I'm mad with you. I'm not focused on who I probably should be angry with. If you're mad with me, you probably aren't focused on, on who should. I mean, the, the political body, the, the, the body politic in America today advantages themselves when they create this division and friction points in society. So, so, so if, if they're in charge and they're advantaged by these divisions, why would they want to alleviate any of the friction? So to your point, and, and you are 100% accurate in your assessment, and it's something that George Washington early in his presidency pointed out. If you recall, he was actually against having a multi-party system. It was Hamilton and Jefferson who actually had a different perspective, and ultimately their views went out, which is why we have the, the multi-party system that we have today. Um, but it was George Washington who clearly warned against the multi-party system for the very reasons that you just articulated. 
is that it gives an opportunity for right people within the political construct to influence right rightly wrongly or for self promotional purposes right uh competing in most times false agendas which is leads to the divisiveness that we have today so you're 100% spot on it, it it is absolutely something that you know current modern day politics wants how can people find the book Sure. The book is available. It's on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, any of the usual places that you'll, you'll get your, your books. But it is certainly available, and I would encourage everyone to pick it up and read it and, uh, and, and work through the issues and, and figure out where we really want to go as a country, because ultimately it's going to be us, the voting public, who gets to determine that. Well, explain. The book is People Over Politics, correct? You got it. Yep. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Have a great one. It's kind of an interesting perspective. You know, we're not as divided as we seem to be. Um, if I've got a pitchfork and you've got a uh, you got a torch, uh, I need you to be mad with me and you need to be mad with, with me. And, and there's an old story there about, I mean, it's true about the ants. I mean, you can put red ants and black ants in a jar together and they'll cohabitate just fine. But, but all of a sudden, if you shake it up a little bit, they start killing one another. And I think the political leadership in America today takes great advantage of that. Had somebody text me something during the break. I want to go back to the other to the other issue at hand. Um, I had a lawyer friend of mine send me a text and said um, he actually sent me a screenshot. Here, here's his under. No, not now. Here's a here's what the law says. I mean, it's my understanding when I say this. But here, what antitrust laws? Here is um, kind of an interpretation of antitrust laws. They are statutes developed by governments to protect consumers from predatory business practices and ensure fair competition. I mean, that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Antitrust laws are applied to a wide range of questionable business activities, including market allocation, monopolies, bid rigging, price fixing, uh, and monopolies. So market allocation. In other words, you got um, how much of the social media market does Twitter and Facebook have? How much of the search engine market does Google have? So, so when you talk about market allocation, um, questionable business practices, is it a questionable business practice for Google to put a Fox News story down in their algorithms? I mean, despite the search engines, I mean, despite how many people watch Fox News, I mean, if, if Google were doing um, an unbiased job and you Googled, um, you know, uh, Biden's family affairs, the Fox News story would be first, but it's not. In fact, it's probably not a hundredth. You're going to have an article from the New York Times, Washington Post, Salon.com, um, CNBC, NBC. I mean, you're going to have a lot of uh, friendly stories. And if you're the Seinfeld watcher and you you, I mean, you hear something on the radio that a guy says at 6 uh, or 7.30 one morning about the Biden family and their potential connectivity or connection to China, and you go home at night and you Google um, Biden family China, and a story from MSNBC comes up that says nothing to see here. It's help you form it's your the Trump opinion. kids. I mean, it's the Trump kids right. that had the connection to China. It's the Trump kids that made all the money. And Jared Kushner made all the money with China. It's nothing to see here. I mean, that influences your judgment. Is, is that good for the common good? I mean, it's is dishonest is what it is. But businesses have a right to be dishonest. I mean, you would hope the market corrects someone from being fundamentally dishonest, but they have a right to mislead. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, how many the best hot dog in town. I mean, you can't, there can't be 16 hot dog stands saying I've got the best hot dog in town. Right. I mean, it's arbitrary. I mean, it's your opinion, my opinion, it's subjective, but, but all of a sudden, you know, a, 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 a search engine basically uses an algorithm 
And somebody created the algorithm. I mean, somebody monitors right, the it's algorithm. It's not an accident. No, I mean, there, there's a human being at Google who said, we don't want people reading what Fox News had to say. We don't want people hearing what Dan Bongino has to say or Clay Travis or some of these conservative voices that have a national presence. We would rather them read the MSNBC or New York Times or Washington Post accounting of, um, of what happens there. And it's kind of interesting. And once again, I mean, I give Jeff a lot of credit at times for kind of pushing the issue and making me think a little bit about what I believe in. But the suggestion that the media is not liberal is an absurd suggestion. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. Even liberals agree that the media is liberal. I mean, there are a few diehards who say, no, it's fair. I mean, you got Murdoch, you got the New York Post and the Washington, you know, Wall Street Journal and, you know, the, uh, the Murdoch empire that owns certain national publications and news outlets. But, but I don't know of a single reasonable liberal that, that if you have an honest conversation, I'm not talking about yelling and screaming, but I don't know a single liberal that says the media is not liberal. I mean, they all believe that. And you talk about the number, <coughs> excuse me, the number of kids who come out of journalistic or journalism school um, and pursue that as a career. I mean, it's, it's, it's monolithic. I mean, it really is. It's 90, 10. Um, I read an article about Ford. No, nah, it wouldn't have been Ford. It'd been Nixon Kennedy. Eh, no, it would have been Carter Reagan, Carter Reagan. Um, somebody in a newsroom said, um, I don't know anybody that voted for Reagan. And the response, of course you don't. You're in the media. <laughs> you saw I me. Mean, so so there, there's kind of a wink and nod and it's historical. It's always been, uh, been the case, but to suggest the media is not overwhelmingly liberal and social media companies aren't overwhelmingly liberal. How many people have been deplatformed? Uh, and I'm talking about previous, uh, must becoming owner of Twitter. It's fair now. I mean, I never went on Twitter because I was so one-sided. I mean, there was no debate about climate election COVID. And now there's a, a very hotly contested debate about climate or, or elections or COVID. And some of these major issues need to be debated and in what is now, I mean, Musk calls it the digital, the new digital town square. Um, it's kind of interesting that 50% of the companies, 50% of his largest advertisers are boycotting, so to speak, because he's allowing free speech. I know. I mean, that's kind of odd, bizarre to me. I mean, it, but that's where we are in America today. And, and I'm telling you guys, the way you get wealthy in America today running a corporation is to get in government's good graces. That's not the way it should. We can argue about regulation and what's too far and how much and, you know, is this company to be treated as a, as a utility? Should we have antitrust laws apply themselves to this situation or that? But, but government has become far too involved in picking winners and losers in the private sector. And I think that's really the, um, the fundamental point I've tried to make. I get regulation. I mean, I think we overregulate. Uh, there's some sectors I think would require some deregulation if I were in charge of the government. But I understand. I mean, I understand that government has a say in, you know, who builds the road? Where does the road go? Where do we build a library? I mean, they're, they're public. I mean, they're, there's, a, there's a public usage to some of those. And I do believe it creeps into the private sector at times when it's required. And I think when, when you talk about, you know, is it good for the public to have monopolies? No. I mean, it's terrible for the public to have monopolies. Um, I'm trying to think of the things. Is Home Depot and Lowe's a monopoly? I mean, I know it, mono. I mean, I understand that's one. It's a duopoly. I mean, is that is that good for the customer? I mean, I know you got one or the other. Mm -hmm. But how easy I mean, they, would they, it be for... They do compete with each but, other. But I mean, how easy would it be to collude? I mean, how easy it would, would it be for the CEO of Lowe's 
to, you know, get together with the CEO of Home Depot. But if you got 25 or 30 different companies that you have options to, I mean, I've always felt that those big boxes are borderline monopolies. But they're not monopolies because it's not one. And I get the, I understand what mono and, 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 you know, it's a duopoly. I mean, it's kind of like Republican and Democrat. I mean, there's two choices. That's it. Who's going to lead the free world? Either a Republican or a Democrat. How many choices do you have um, about lawn care? So, so think about this. When you Google lawn care in Sumter, how many options are there? A hundred to cut your grass. But you want to build a home. You, you, want, to, um, you want to go shopping. you got limited, limited choices. And those, those companies have done a good job at lobbying government, entrenching that they've gained favor with government, I mean, I've got no idea what Lowe's, and I'm not picking on those guys, but when I was a kid, there were 50 places to go buy lumber and construction material. Most of those places are gone now, and you've got one or the other. You go to Lowe's or you go to Home Depot, and I mean, they, they do a spectacular job. I mean, they're, they're incredibly well-run companies. Um, some, some are, you know, you have to search around, find somebody to help you in some of these big boxes from time to time, but I get it. I mean, it's labor-intensive, and they got certain budgets for I mean, I understand being in business, I'm certainly aware of that. But 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 when when antitrust laws were implemented, I mean that they were basically to protect consumers from predatory business practices practices and to ensure fair competition. Is it fair competition to have two places in a community to buy lumber? I, I don't know. I mean I think that's a very questionable um, subject. But um, is is Facebook, Twitter, Google practicing? Um, mono, are they monopolies? I mean, that, that's the question we're posing. Are they indeed monopolies? Well, if you remember back when the whole thing with Twitter was people were getting deplatformed for these reasons, election, whatever. 41,000. And the answer then at that time was, well, go start your own Twitter. And some people tried. There was Parler, I think, was, a, was one that was put out there. And they got shut down because of the power of Amazon Web Services, uh, Apple and Google's app stores, so they never could get off the ground. They, they started getting a following. People were migrating to another platform to be able to express open and free speech views, and they got shut down by the other social media giants that had too much power. You, you're advocating too strongly for free speech. You right. believe too passionately in the First Amendment. we got to do something about that. And they have a lot of authority. They have a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of money. I'm at a tremendous amount of resources. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Morning, Williams. Good morning. I want to talk about the South Carolina State Supreme Court. Uh, what do you think about the decision they make Mark Miller's testify? What do you think about it? Why would you have to go to state court if he did nothing wrong? Tell, tell, well, tell our listeners what you're talking about, Williams. Uh, January 6th. I want to ask you one more question. Which person do you think Jack Smith's going to get? Trump or Mello first? Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. I mean, I, I think the um, I mean, what he's talking about is South Carolina Supreme Court has ordered Mark Meadows to testify uh, I don't know all the details. I didn't read much of this. There's an article at CNN if you want to check it out. Um, Google it. Google um, Mark Meadows, South Carolina Bill Supreme Court. Bring it up first. Yeah, and it's uh, it happened yesterday. But the um, 
if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's some. Remember, Lindsey got all tied up in, or Senator Graham got all tied up in, um, in, in Georgia, some of the Georgia election yeah, issues. I remember. Um, the Supreme Court of South Carolina has ordered former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to testify before a special grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. We review the arguments raised by appellate and find them to be manifest, manifestly without merit. The South Carolina Supreme Court justices wrote in their opinion, the decision upholds a ruling by a lower court in South Carolina where Meadows resides. That's why the South Carolina Supreme Court, because Mark Meadows lives in South Carolina, which un, uh, determined the matter, uh, determined he was material and necessary to the, the investigation. And then you've got a Fulton County attorney general or a district attorney in Fulton County that's kind of um, ramrodding the um the 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 grand jury investigation about manipulating or not the 2020 Georgia elections. I don't know if you saw this or not, but um more people voted in Georgia Monday in early voting than any time in American history. Despite Jim Crow 2.0, people are figuring out a way to vote in um in Georgia. Remember, Major League Baseball moved the All Star Game because it was going to disenfranchise Remember voters. Remember well. Well, they had 150,000 early vote over the weekend. They had 300,000 vote on um on Monday. So right now there's about 550, 60, 70,000 votes in the bank. This was as of yesterday. I mean that number will obviously increase. So when Joe Biden runs around talking about the old South and the you know what I mean, the racism is just pervasive in the South and um you know what the the Republicans in Georgia are trying to dis disenfranchise their voters more people are going to vote in georgia than in any time in american history the concerning point to me about george actually made a note this morning thank you williams for getting me back on on this subject i noticed the way you want to talk about it but this is twitter we got two sides to the story <laughs> right um they've they've asked desantis to come to georgia and the national party is advising desantis not to go to georgia because if DeSantis goes to Georgia, Trump's led them believe he'll go to Georgia and kind of competing endorsements, competing rallies. That, that's a conundrum. I mean, that, I find that real concerning, real alarming. Something happened last night that, that you know, may have flew under the radar, maybe not. I mean, my, my BS meter came up or my, um, ah, my political sensibilities began really um, kicking into high gear when I saw DeSantis on Tucker. Hmm. There, there's something happening here. I mean, there, there's some data out there that, um, I mean, the Trump announcement fell on its face. I mean, it didn't make, it didn't move the meter. I mean, I read some of the polling. It's about the same, the public interest. I mean, we're two years out. I get that. Well, I I don't, not for Trump. I mean, I think think for the public, well, for the public, but, but the, I still, Trump's still a different animal. And I think some of the excitement has waned. Some of the enthusiasm has waned. And, you know, they believe DeSantis is the most helpful person to go to Georgia to help Walker win. But DeSantis is convinced, or the the, the, the National Party is convinced, if DeSantis goes, Trump will go to try to upstage or one-up DeSantis. And they think Trump's a net negative when it comes to moderates and, and independents in Georgia. And um, it's kind of interesting the Walker campaign has kept the Trump campaign kind of at arm's distance. Who would draw the bigger crowd in well, I mean, Georgia? Trump would draw the biggest crowd, but he'd cause you more problems. I mean, he may cause you to lose the election. I mean, he probably would cause you to lose the election. Uh, let, let's, let's stay in this lane. I mean, there's an interesting debate about Georgia that is kind of a uh, precursor to what may happen in the 24 presidential. Back in a minute. 
843-661-0937. Let's go back to the the issue of Twitter and Facebook and Google and some of these companies that have so much influence on the debate in America, what's allowed, what's not allowed, uh, what's prioritized, what's um, what's subjected to censorship to some degree. Why? I'm going to ask yourself this. Why are certain entities or enterprises disinterested in allowing a debate about climate change and allowing a debate about COVID and allowing a debate about election integrity? I mean, just kind of ask yourself, forget liberal conservative for a second. Forget the fact that most conservatives believe they don't get a fair shake on Twitter before Musk, don't get a fair shake on Facebook, uh, MSNBC, uh, NBC, ABC, CBS. Forget that for a second. I mean, do you really believe that the media and and the businesses are that committed to liberalism? No, it's narrative control. I mean, it's all about who controls the message. So why does government allow big business to influence the message in such a way? I mean, it's all about money, guys. I've told you since the first day I got on this show, you can you can dispute a lot of things I say, and they deserve to be disputed. Jeff can call it 100 times, and he may be right 50 times. I think I'm right 50 times. I mean, there, there's a lot of fair debate out there to be had about the operation that we call American politics. But never underestimate what the intent is. Never underestimate what the, the guiding light, the North Star, so to speak, is. It's money. So, so when, when Twitter disallows a serious debate about COVID, who's behind that? I mean, do you not believe Pfizer and Merck and, and Big Pharma? Do you not believe that they're behind that in some way, shape, or form? Of course they are. I mean, the last thing Pfizer needs is a debate about whether the vaccine works or not. Vaccine hesitancy. Remember that? COVID deniers. Um, va- you know, oh, yeah. the, the unvaccinated. I mean, the, the businesses are behind all this. And that's the dirty secret in, in American government today is how beholden your elected officials have become to corporate interest in and entities and enterprise and organized fundraising. Don't they do this under the guise of misinformation? They're saying, you know, we need, we're going to shut down these. And what are debates and differing opinions? They're saying the opposing opinion is misinformation. But, but you and I know they're shutting the debate down. I mean, we're, we're familiar enough. You, you and I host a radio show for four hours every day. I mean, we sit side by side. You know how much I read about this. And I don't read redstate.com 24-7. I mean, I'm out there reading Salon and, and Huffington Post and rolling. I mean, I try to get a lot of different opinions from a lot of different places because everybody doesn't think what I think. Everybody doesn't believe what I believe in. And I try to subject myself to people who have different opinions. I'm texting with a Democrat House member now about something. Uh, we're talking about monopoly. So, so I'm always exposing myself to a different way of thinking, a different way of seeing things. But it doesn't matter if you're Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. You, you've got to accept that most of this is about the money. How can money influence policy? I mean, we know what happens, Reb. I mean, there's going to be $28 million spent in a runoff in Georgia for one Senate seat. I mean, the Republicans are going to spend about $14, $15 million. The Democrats are going to spend about $14, $15 million. So there's going to be roughly $30 million spent in a single Senate seat in Georgia. Why? Who's it worth? to be in control to, to the point of spending that sort of money. I mean, think about it. McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund. McConnell doesn't have $15 million. The Democrat Leadership Fund. I mean, they don't have $15 million. Somebody made that contribution to McConnell based on what? A conservative mindset? No. Can we get government to work to our favor? And that's what you've got to understand. So when Twitter, you know, previous of Trump, excuse me, of, um, of Musk becoming the owner, 
when, when Twitter basically says to 60, oh, it's about 41,000 combined. I mean, I think it's 31 and 11 the other. I want to make sure I get these numbers right. The reason I'm talking about it, COVID, um, excuse me, Twitter stopped enforcing their COVID misinformation policy yesterday. But I mean, they basically said, we're not doing that any longer. They didn't make a public announcement, but as part of the changes made under their new owner and CEO, um, once again, no formal announcement. They just stopped enforcing that this, you know, was labeled COVID-19 misinformation in the previous, um, in the previous ownership. So, um, the platform had suspended about 11,000 accounts and another 40,000 accounts. So there was about, um, you know, 51,000 voices and opinions that were disallowed in the discourse. I mean, do you believe that Twitter is, is a, is, is, is committed to, I mean, do you believe the people at Twitter believe that we've had that debate and that debate is settled? No, but there was money in play. There was advertising revenue. There was Pfizer. Um, There was probably political pressure at some point in time. These people who say the vaccine doesn't work are really causing a lot of chaos in this orderly way we've made this deal. Folks, what we've got to understand, and it's hard for me to grasp, it's hard for anybody to grasp, is the, the tremendous amounts of money. I mean, I'm not talking about a vacation home at the beach. I'm talking about the fourth home in the Hamptons, the second helicopter, you know, the CEO making 40 million a year that wants to make 80 million a year. I mean, that, that's what we've got to, we, we've got to understand that the, I mean, the, the, it's not the money. Charles Barkley famously said, it's not the money. It's how much money. And we've allowed the political system to become so ah, influential in who wins and who loses. And when you, I mean, remember we did a, um, I mean, I think you did it for me. You put together somewhat of a montage of um, brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah, we found that online. I mean, it was 30, yeah. it was 30 times in, in two days. Mm-hmm. You know, CNN brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the Press brought to you by Pfizer. I mean, do you believe Pfizer genuinely believes that there's not a legitimate debate to be had? Or does Pfizer want to sell vaccines and create more profit and make their shareholders happier? And Wall Street smile more friendly upon uh, Pfizer. I mean, that's what all this is about. It's not about human opinion. It's not about conservative and liberal. It's always about the money. To some degree, it's about the money in Columbia. To some degree, it's about the money in state houses all over the country. But the extreme example is our federal government. Once again, $30 million are going to be spent in a month. That's a million dollars a day in Georgia to win a Senate seat. I mean, do you really believe there are that many conservative warriors or liberal warriors or, or, or the conservative, excuse me, the Republicans have a, a, a certain loyalty or allegiance to the business sector, the Democrats? I mean, they're, they're all prostitutes. The two parties have just prostituted themselves to different factions. Um, who does Big Pharma support? It depends. Who does um, some of the climate change activists support? I mean, there's a lot of money in green energy. I mean, we know how much the government's incentivized green energy. And I'm not arguing for or against green energy. I mean, that's a fair debate. It's a fair debate COVID. I mean, it's fair to argue profusely about whether the vaccine works or not. How effective? How durable? I mean, those are honest debates. Those are things we need to have serious discussion. I mean, I'm not the guy that needs to be having them. I mean, it would be like Robert Malone. Robert Malone is a, is a trained medical expert. He is um, probably as informed, as extensively informed about mRNA vaccines than anybody in the world. I mean, he's at least in the top five. 
I'm not saying he's the foremost. Who knows who the foremost is? But he's one of the most credible voices in mRNA vaccines in America, in the world for that matter. He was disallowed from participating in the conversation. Who shut him down? Twitter, the media, Facebook. Okay, but here's the second question. Why did they shut him down? I mean, what logic, what reason can you not allow one of the leading experts in in a field to not comment in that field? It's money. I mean, it's Pfizer. It's Big Pharma. It's the healthcare industry. I mean, they, they saw an opportunity to basically fleece the government for trillions of dollars, and that's exactly what they did. So we got to stop thinking that all of this is about liberal or conservative. I mean, I get real wrapped up in that. I mean, I'm a conservative American. I'm, I'm a fairly libertarian-leaning Republican. Sometimes you can convince me that the media is out to get me, my mindset, my way of thinking. What they're after is personal liberties and freedoms. Who's the base, who, who, Who's the most dangerous person to a uh, an, an organized and and constructed world. I mean, those who don't like that, right? I mean, freedoms and liberties bring about some degree of chaos. I mean, we're seeing that in China today. I mean, the Chinese people have had enough of totalitarian governments. Somebody texted me yesterday, who wins? I mean, who do you bet on? I mean, the people with the power or people trying to get power? I mean, that, that, in essence, that's what this is about. And, and the American president has been deadly silent. Why? Because, I mean, I, you know, we, we can debate. I mean, you can't debate whether he's a small-minded politician. I mean, Biden's always been a small-minded politician. I mean, he's, there, there's not an example of Joe Biden and, 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 you know, major legislation, like Kennedy or not, and I'm talking about Ted Kennedy, I mean, he had big ideas. I mean, he, he was out there. He had some big ideas. Joe Biden's never had a big idea. So we can't, I mean, I, you know, I can easily argue that he's a small-minded politician. Is he morally bankrupt? I don't know. Is he in bed with China? I don't know. I mean, does his son have some beholdenness to China that he's responsible for? I don't know. I know that Twitter wouldn't have the conversation prior to the election because somebody from the FBI went to um, somebody at Facebook and said, hey, there's this story. Stop this story from seeing the light of day. But, but the point I'm trying to make is we know there are a lot of shenanigans that happen. We know there are a lot of things we can't explain. But you've got to ask yourself why. Why are they trying to – why are people spending 30 – or investing, let's say that – why are people investing $30 million in Georgia to win a Senate seat? Because one party has a loyalty or an allegiance to a certain moneyed interest. Larry talked earlier about the common good. I mean, I'd love to believe that people went to Washington, whether they've got a D beside their name or an R beside their name, to transact the public's business. I mean, the, the notion of government. That's why you vote for someone, because you believe that person goes to Washington and does right by you. It doesn't mean they, they side with you every time, but they consider the people of America and the policies that they um, you know advocate for, vote on behalf of, I mean, those policies are good for the country. That's not who we are today. I mean, we're, we're absolutely not that. We're, we're not a government of, for, and by the people. I mean, we're a government of, of moneyed interest. And, and people who give enormous amounts of money, raise enormous amounts of money, they influence government far more than those who don't. And so, so when you talk about the corruptness of government, I mean, it really goes back to the money. Now, now you could argue, yeah, but free speech and the First Amendment gives me, it does. I mean, absolutely it does. Um, I'm one of the few Republicans who believe Citizens United was a bad, bad decision. Philosophically, I get it. I mean, I do. I understand why a corporation should have the right to give as much money to a political campaign as they choose to. 
But is that in the public's best interest? I mean, if Pfizer gives $100 million to the Republicans and $100 million to the Democrats, are they trying to do right by the public? Or are they trying to make sure policy works to their advantage? And that's what we all, we, we stop there. We, we, we get so caught up in this, and it really goes back to shaking the jar. You know, the red ants and the black ants. I mean, they get along just fine until somebody shakes the jar. So as long as Twitter and Facebook and the media are convincing the majority of Americans that I'm the boogeyman or you're the boogeyman, we don't really find the real boogeyman. I mean, the boogeyman are those in Washington, probably on K Street most of the time, raising and contributing enormous amounts of money to sway our political process to do one thing or another. And I think Twitter is an example of that. I think Twitter prior to Musk became a vessel, a vehicle for not the government, but corporate America. What is the narrative corporate America wanted? How committed is Pfizer to making sure nobody questions the efficacy of their vaccine? They're damn committed. How much money do they have in stake or at stake? I mean, it's billions and I mean, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, how much money we read it one day. I mean, I, th- I think Pfizer had the most profitable quarter, third quarter, 2021 might've been second quarter, 2021 Pfizer made more money than any corporation in human history. I mean, their, their, their net margins were more than any company and 80% of their sales were to the government. So we, the taxpayer basically um, spent money. We don't have funding Pfizer's questionable vaccine that was not allowed to be questioned. So if Pfizer has to spend, you know, a few million dollars to kind of tamp down a message or, or to not allow a debate, that's money well spent. And that's really the, I mean, that, that, to me, that's the macro. And I wrote down this morning, um, go- government is engaging in the private sector. The private sector is willingly complicit in allowing the government to engage. Why is Apple saying kind things about China? I mean, China, China, China embodies everything we stand against. I mean, any time there was an uprising, and I'm not for sending troops or or missiles or weaponry, but I mean, the American president has always stood tall and said, proclaimed his support for freedom fighters around the world. I mean, Biden's been mum. You know, let the protesters speak for themselves is what the Kirby, uh, the Biden administration, Kirby's their their spokesperson. I mean, when I asked yesterday, he got challenged a little bit. You know, what, where where do we stand on this issue in China? About and it's really it's he kind said, of like we're not going to speak for the, mean, the protesters. The protesters will speak for themselves. Well, the American presidents always spoke on behalf of liberty and freedom. I mean, we've always advocated for people around the world pursuing the the the, the interest of freedom and liberty and, until now, and we're not doing it now. And once again, is that because Biden is a small-minded politician, or is he morally bankrupt? And part of his moral bankruptcy is beholden to China in some way, shape, or form. I don't know that. I don't have any idea what their arrangement was. We know that Hunter Biden got a lot of money from places that don't make sense. Right? I mean, you, you agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, even the most liberal Democrat, and you can go Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, and we can debate that. I mean, let's debate what they did when they were in the White House. But they're not the president now. They're not the son of a president. They've been pretty well investigated. I mean, for someone to believe Trump hadn't been investigated, you just hadn't been following, uh, you know, the world of politics for the past five or six or seven years. He's been thoroughly investigated. There's a perpetual investigation. And the day Trump breathes his last breath, he'll probably still be under investigation because, once again, he dared do what no man should. He kind of challenged the status quo. He jumped the shark. He got in the middle of the muck and said, I don't like the way these things are running. Let's see if we can kind of rearrange 
some of the time. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying everything Trump did was good. I'm, I'm certainly not insinuating that. But, but once again, if the American president, who has always spoken out on behalf of liberties and freedoms, if he's morally bankrupt, and if the moral bankruptcy is part and parcel to his you know, involvement, his family's involvement in some sort of Chinese activity, I mean, do we need to know that? The media has no interest in that. I mean, they had an interest in everything Trump did. I mean, Williams called in a second ago talking about former chief of staff of the former president who formerly may have done something. Why are we not interested in the current president and the current family member and the current situation? Because the media has chosen to pick sides. Why? See, that's what we've always got to ask ourselves. Why? And here's my determination. My determination is one party right now in America says to hell with the old way. I want something new. I want something different. And somebody's standing guard of what is. And it's Pfizer. And it's Boeing. And it's CNN. I mean, it's, it's all these people who have accumulated and amassed enormous influence and power. And the last thing they're going to do is give up this influence and power. So when Trump shows up, this American First Movement kind of gains momentum and steam. It's a threat. I mean, it's a danger. It's something that could catapult itself into becoming the change agent that nobody in Washington wants. Um, it's kind of interesting. When, when the people on K Street complain about health care, I mean, they, they're the ones. It's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a game they play. I mean, it, it's, you know, uh, when, when Obamacare became law of the land, the people that sounded the most frustrated were the pharmaceutical companies, the hospitals, and the insurance companies. Um, look at their stock after Obamacare. I mean, it went up 30, 40%. I mean, they drafted the legislation. They come out like, you know, that we're deeply bothered and concerned about this new health care legislation that we created. We drafted, we signed off <laughs> on, we donated to candidates or campaigns to make sure it got done the way we wanted it done. And that's what we've got to continually remind ourselves of. I mean, we're not talking about $1,000 donations to a House member trying to get elected in Sumter. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars, not to get people elected, but rather control an entire political system take a break back in a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven our number fox uh, fox news radio jeff Bonasso is with us jeff good morning how are you i'm doing well how are you we are doing well so Georgia's breaking all kinds of records not just in college football but also <laughs> early voting walker warnock runoff if i'm not mistaken there was one hundred fifty thousand voted over the weekend broke an all-time record on monday of what three hundred thousand people voting yeah, the normal record, uh, I think it was around 233,000 votes in a day. And so that was shattered on Monday. You, you mentioned 300,000, yes. Uh, but we've also heard from the uh, Georgia Deputy Secretary of State, Gabrielle uh, Sterling, who tweeted out late, late last night that, uh, again, turnout Tuesday surpassed 300,000 voters as well. So people are early voting is, is crushing records uh, there. Uh, and and so you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, Warnock led Walker by about thirty-seven thousand votes out of four million cast in the general, but he fell short of the majority required under Georgia law, triggering this runoff. Um, and uh, you know, younger people appear to be showing up; those aged fifty or or under, accounting for more than a quarter of the vote so far, according to official figures late Tuesday. Um, but uh, they're working hard, both parties, both sides working hard. Warnock and Democrats, they won a lawsuit uh, allowing Saturday voting after Thanksgiving. He spent the weekend urging supporters to get out there and vote, not to wait till next week 
uh, and concentrated his efforts among black communities in metro Atlanta. And um, Walker, uh, he didn't hold any public events over Thanksgiving weekend, but uh, in his return to the campaign Monday night in northern Atlanta, According to the AP, he didn't mention early voting specifically. Republicans generally do better uh, on on voting day, and Democrats know that there's a a, a smaller window of, you know, just days and weeks uh, rather than months in the general to to get this early voting done. And so we'll see how it translates, uh, despite polling that shows uh, that uh, that Warnock is is, uh, in a slightly... Uh, over Walker uh, as we head into the general of uh, the the runoff election next Tuesday. And Jeff, most of this early voting is in person. Is that right? Yeah, in person early voting. Correct. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate your time. You bet. Uh, kind of an interesting. People always talk about well, is it early voting or absentee voting? It's it's early voting, but it's in person voting. And um, I mean, you know, there there, there are times. Th- these are the things that the new Georgia law set up and. But, but if you think about it, I mean, legal. you would expect. I mean, you got a condensed time period. I mean, the. the you know, before Georgia changed its laws, uh, the Senate bill, I think SB 22 or SB 202, um, you had until January to vote. I mean, the runoff took place the first week in January, and now it's the first week in December. So we've cut 30 days out of early voting. So you would imagine. That's the concentration. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you got to believe that. I mean, if, if as many people are going to try to vote in 30 days as would normally vote in, in 60 days, you're going to have higher numbers. Now, I don't have any idea who that advantage is. I don't have any idea. I can tell you the person most interested in this race, not named Herschel Walker, not named um, Dr. Warnock, is uh, uh, Joe Manchin. Mm. I mean, it cuts Manchin some slack. I'm telling you guys, trust me, 24, Manchin's got a hard deal. I mean, he's in West Virginia. We know how Republican West Virginia is. If it's 50-50, Manchin's got to be pressed to toe the line. And he may break ranks, but if it's 51, he's got an out. I mean, it's a mansion-proof majority. He can go to bat for the values of West Virginia, and the Democrats still get done what they want to get done. But if it's 50-50, I'm just saying Joe Manchin is the most interested person in this race, not named Warnock, Walker, McConnell, or Schumer. Trust me. I mean, there, there's Manchin's holding his breath saying, please, please, please give me 51 Democrats so I can do my own thing, go to bat for West Virginia, get reelected in 2024 let's go to the phone jeff in florence morning jeff hey good morning hey jeff hey um just uh just real quick uh you were talking about um the um uh by you know how the lobbyists for the pharmaceuticals uh loved uh and wrote the obamacare bill and and the obamacare bill is a piece of garbage um it, it's a it's it's a half solution that benefits nobody and the pharmaceutical companies absolutely uh, benefited from it, but the uh, some of the um, uh, new legislation that was passed with allowing um, negotiating drug prices. I don't know if you're aware of what Mark Cuban is doing with his uh, online pharmacy, mm-hmm. um, but there he's there. There are now paths to lower drug costs. But uh, the pharmaceutical companies were instrumental in Obamacare, and it is a bad piece of legislation. Um, it was an, it was an inside back. baseball deal, Jeff. I mean, I've been inside there a little bit. I mean, it was a bill created by the staff and the lobbyists for big pharma, the healthcare industry in general, and the insurance companies. Yeah, it was. It was a. Uh, it, it was more of a uh, about the win than than the help, right? Correct. So, uh, but uh, why did we get there? 
right? We, we've talked about how healthcare is going to be the thing that breaks the U.S., right? You agree with that? Totally agree. I, I, I agree with we that. We can fix Social Security pretty easily. It's going to be a heavy lift to fix Medicare and Medicaid. Right. And, and so when you look at what that solution looks like, if you go back and look at the Clintons' first two years, Bill Clinton's first two year in office, and I said the Clintons because Hillary Clinton was put in charge of uh, the health care solution that they were trying to develop in the 92 to 94. And if you go back there, you'll see that they had the Democrats had control of the Senate and the House. And you ask yourself, well, how didn't they get any medical care passed? It was a, a failure. They couldn't get anything done. And it was all because Democrats on the take from the pharmaceutical companies voted against the best interests of the U.S. citizens. And, yeah, I mean, it, you want to talk about lobbyists. The people that cast a deciding vote, Democrats in Congress, to kill uh, that medical care package, right after two years later, they went to work for the pharmaceutical companies. So there's, there definitely needs to be um, some oversight, Democrat and Republican, um, for lobbying. Jeff, would you um, be in was, favor? Would you be in favor of publicly funded campaigns? Oh, we we had them. Uh, that, that's I don't think people understand that that is how our elections were were run. You, I mean, anybody remember filling out their taxes and checking that little box? Do you want two dollars or five dollars to go to publicly funded campaigns? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was how America was run. And guess what? That's how it is in England. That's how it is in Canada. Um, no special interest money, no dark money, no PACs, all that's got to go away. Um, we we need to that's what we need to fix. It, it's got nothing to do with the Republican or Democrat, like you said, after their name. It's got to do with who paid their campaign. And and so. To get back to that, get rid of Citizens United, get rid of this free speech as money, and we might have a chance to get some effective leadership on both sides. So, Thank you, Jeff. You pre- I appreciate it, my man. I mean, that's, that's well explained, and I think if we can start there, I mean, you've heard the debates Jeff and I have. We, we disagree on a lot of things. I can't think of much to disagree with. But, I mean, you, you can. Said. I mean, we, we've got to figure out a way to stop money from influencing politics. Here's, the, here's kind of the, um, the evolution. You ready? There was a day the Democrats were perceived to be for the working man. And I'm saying that figuratively, not literally, but but the working man, working family, working woman, the average American. There was a day that the Democrats were perceived to be the party of that person. That's why the Republicans had all the money. That's why all the corporate interests were donating to the Republicans. We got to we got to admit this. And this is a hard thing to get your hands around. Corporate interest and moneyed interest don't have good government in mind. I mean, it's preferential treatment. They're not paying in a patriotic fashion. I mean, this is lousy to say, but you got to believe it. Pfizer could care less the, the plot of the average American family. I mean, they have no interest in that. Pfizer is in it for the money. I mean, you know, they're, they're bored, has fiduciary responsibility to what? Maximize earnings. I mean, if the government will help them, why not lobby the government to convince them that you need help? But what's happened now is America First seems to be, I mean, we know at the center of America First is populism, right? I mean, the one thing populism is, I mean, it's a lot of different things, but it's a political energy that, that can burn brightly for a short period of time. I mean, it normally doesn't sustain. I mean, populism has always been integrated in politics in some way, shape, or form, but, but it festers. 
And all of a sudden, it, it boils over, and we have this populist movement. And this time, it happens to be called America First. And America First is what? I mean, it, it's said to embody, you know, the disgruntlement the average American has with this political system. So what do the money and interest do? They stop giving the Republicans money because their guy is enticing average Americans. You, you see where I'm headed? The Reagan Democrat has become the Trump Democrat. Um, so so the, the, excuse me, the money and interest, the Pfizer's of the world say, well, I mean, we gave money to the Republicans because the Democrats were the party of the working man. Now it seems like the Republicans are the party of the working man. So where are the majority of Pfizer contributions going? Where are the majority of the media running interference for and in favor of? And that's what we've got to keep convincing ourselves. And it's hard because I'm conservative and Jeff's somewhat liberal. And Jeff looks at my worldview and says, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. And I look at Jeff and say, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. When in reality, the, 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 the body politic is being maneuvered, manipulated by money. And as long as Jeff's angry with me and I'm angry with him and we're arguing about, you know, um, whatever it is we're arguing about, the, the train keeps running on time. And Pfizer gets another $100 billion a lot, but another $200 billion allocation of taxpayer dollars. I mean, that's the way this machine runs, guys. And, and you've got to trust me here. Why is Apple not spoken out? I mean, Apple's one of the most innovative co uh, companies in the history of mankind. I mean, you could argue they're the most innovative company in the history of mankind. Why is Apple not spoken out? Because they've got too much money at risk. It has nothing to do with human rights. It has nothing to do with um, totalitarian governments. Or, or, you know, um, doing the right thing. It's all about Apple has an enormous uh, amount at risk in China. What, where are the majority of their products made? Their components are made. Um, I mean, forget that China stole most of the technology secrets that allowed them to build the Apple phones. Forget the totalitarian regime that um, has, has murdered, you know, millions of its own people. That There's money at risk. There's money at play. And, and it's hard for us to understand that because the majority of us wouldn't do anything for money. I mean, we do a lot of things. We wouldn't do anything. The, the thing I learned about politics, there ain't much they won't do to get their way. I mean, there's some things that the majority of Americans will do to get their way, but, but every American has a line in the sand. I ain't going, I'm not doing that, man. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I ain't going there. I mean, I'll do this and this and this, but I'm not doing that. I think Jeff has a line. I have a line. Liberals have a line. Conservatives have a line. Those people who believe they're entitled to control government by the enormous amounts of money they use to try and influence, I mean, their, their line's a lot further over there than ours is. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, it's kind of interesting. There, there was a period of time I felt Walker had the advantage. I'm, I'm beginning to feel Warnock has the advantage. Uh, there seems to be some just confusion in the Republican Party today. I think DeSantis is a big part of that. Trump, obviously, a big part of that. Kemp has been campaigning with Walker. It's kind of interesting. An article in CNN last night or this morning I read was um, the Kemp voter voting for Warnock. That's bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you voted for Abrams, I get it. I mean, there's a direct lineage, you know, or political linkage, political ideology association between Warnock and, and, um, and Stacey Abrams. But how you vote against Abrams for Kemp and against Walker and for, I mean, I mean despite the fact that you could say Walker's not versed enough, he's not informed enough, he's a football player, you know, riding that reputation he had at the University of Georgia. I mean, all of that probably is true to some degree. But, but there's got to be some acceptance. You know what I mean? I don't want to say the lesser two evils, but that's kind of sort of what I'm, what I'm saying in here. I mean, if, if you're not enthusiastic about a candidate, you normally pick the one that you're, um, 
Uh, enthusiasm would be a bad word, but you, you find more acceptable. What do you make of what uh, Jeff Manasso said in his report about younger people in the early vote? Well, obviously, that's not good for the Republican. I mean, that's going to be bad for the that's Republican. Um, but, but elections are different today, guys. I said it, and I'll say it again. Um, polls, historical trends, uh, messaging, um, issues, candidate quality, um, political infrastructure, um, traditional get-out-the-vote efforts. I mean, all these things matter to some degree but the modern day campaign in america is going to be about ballots out ballots in i mean how do we get the most ballots out and how do we harvest the most ballots and get them counted i mean that's the essence of the campaign i mean if you don't believe that look at pennsylvania i mean pennsylvania elected a dead man literally and a guy that you could argue was cognitively impaired to the point of not being able to carry on a coherent conversation. I mean, will he get better or not? Don't know. But but in Pennsylvania, I mean, there's no way you could argue. I mean, a dead man can't win if the campaign's about earning votes and if it's about issues and trends and, and messaging and quality. I mean, the candidate quality, he's dead. How, how worse a candidate can you be? I mean, you lost to a dead man. But there's some candidate in Pennsylvania today that can honestly say, hey, I ran for office and lost to a dead man. I mean, the absurdity of that. I mean, how are we not in an uproar about losing someone? And it may have been the worst candidate in the world, but he wasn't dead. I mean, he lost to a deceased person. So, so it's not about earning your vote anymore. It's not about traditional campaigning any longer. It's about ballots in, ballots out. And it's not about get out of the voting effort. It's about harvesting ballots. In some of these states, 13 states in particular, that have liberal harvesting laws, I mean, that's what the Republican Party has to do. Um, and I'm, I find it deeply upsetting that Ronald McDaniel still has a job. I mean, I can't, I, for the life of me, and I know the MyPillow guy, Lynn Dale's thinking about running for chairman. I hope we don't do that. Okay. I mean, I hope we just absolutely don't do that. I mean, I think if Lee Zeldin runs, I mean, he's a competent, quality guy, that, that, that guy could help us turn the page and 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 embrace some of these new we talked about clemson earlier the nil and transfer portal i mean Dabo isn't crazy about it but it's here and it didn't go anywhere it's the new model of college football ballot harvesting is the new model of elections and if you can get a basically a vegetable and a dead man elected in a state you can certainly um you can attribute all that to ballot harvesting i mean there's no way fetterman won the vote there's no way Fetterman had the qualities or exuded the temperament that it takes to for a, for a reasonable voter to say, yeah, I mean, that's the guy I want in, in Washington as our senator. There, there's no, you can't explain that except ballot harvesting. In Pennsylvania, we've always known, uh, we didn't call it ballot harvesting, we call it ballot hustling. But they've legalized that. COVID changed the world. And some of these states have normalized what is a very abnormal way of voting. That's the reason I asked Manasso, and I read this morning, the majority of voting in Georgia is in-person voting. I mean, there's going to be some mail-in, some absentee, but, but it won't be as much. That's the reason I think Walker has a chance is because we're, we're basically having people go to the poll. And we know Republicans do better when people go to the poll. They don't win 70-30 like they lose the mail-ins. I mean, they're losing the mail-in vote, the absentee vote, the harvesting vote, 70-30. I mean, that, that, that's bizarre to me that we're that far behind and the Democrats are that aggressive in pursuing, you know, the new way of which we vote. I mean, college football, NIL, transfer portal, politics, ballot harvesting.
I mean, they're they're they're, they're just big game changers in the way we um we're electing people to office. And for the life of me, I don't understand how to run a McDaniel. I mean, to lose that bad. And it's not the first time. 2018, 2020. You've had time to catch up. I mean, you've had time to adjust and accept, hey, as much as I don't like this, it's the new normal. you got to build an infrastructure in Arizona, in, um, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania may be too far gone, but Arizona and Nevada are very much still in play. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's there. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Hey, good morning, uh, Ken and Dave. Um, I'm really enjoying the show this morning. I'm calling to you from Cross Hill, South Carolina. This is near Greenwood in the Upstate. So I'm, I may want to be one of your farthest north northern listeners. Anyway, <laughs> appreciate you listening, sir. Thank you very much for yes, calling sir. in. Yeah, you get me up early in the morning too. <laughs> Just start <laughs> listening. But anyway, um. These numbers that uh, uh, the, the, the reporter uh, announced is really a, a signal of trouble, I think, for the Republicans um, going into this election. And over the Thanksgiving holiday, like I said, I live in the upstate of South Carolina, but I was watching a local TV channel, and a Warnock message, Thanksgiving message, came on uh, on, the, on the screen. And he was he really did a good job with counting his blessings and encouraging, of course, the vote. And so it got me to thinking, and I think the one quiver that the Democrats have in Georgia and in the South in general in, in, uh, uh, is the, the African-American church. And we've got an African-American pastor versus an African-American football player. The pastor has the pulpit every Sunday. And I guarantee you... Uh, Church attendance may be in the white Christian denominations, if you will, churches is generally down. But I, I would dare say the African-Americans are there in full force every Sunday. And they are getting the message, I think, from their pastors about this election. And it's important to get out and vote. They may not say who to vote for, but everybody understands in their message what they're saying. So anyway, I, I just think that's an advantage they have and would be interested in what you think about that. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Once again, thank you for listening um, that far off. Um, that kind of makes me feel good. It makes, uh, I mean, you guys, and I mean this sincerely, but I say this a lot and, and I mean it. I mean, you, this shows nothing without you. I mean, it's absolutely nothing. I mean, it's me talking to Rev and Rev talking to me and Freehold trying to tell us when to take breaks. I mean, it doesn't mean the interaction we have from you. Um, really makes this job easier. It makes it more rewarding. I mean, not that you owe me anything. I mean, nobody owes me anything. I get paid a decent salary to do this every every morning. But your interaction and your engagement forces me to be better. 
and it forces me to listen and then take into what you have to say. I mean, I can be easily influenced by my own, you know, opinion and judgment. I mean, it's, it's easy for me to convince myself that I've got it all figured out. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I felt good about Walker. I mean, the week after the election, I felt like, okay, um, the stars are going to align. Kemp is going to get on board and, and Georgia is still red. I mean, Kemp and the other constitutional officers, I mean, prove to me that Georgia still leans Republican. It's not a red South Carolina. I mean, it's probably not as red as North Carolina right now, but it's still prohibitively red until um, you start talking about some of the ballot harvesting, some of the early voting, uh, some of the young demographic, you know, is turning out to vote for, I guess, the rev against abortion. You know, the Republicans are the, the extreme party when it comes to, to abortion. But, um, but, but I want to go back to something Sam said, because this is to me, I mean, this is kind of the macro argument. And once again, I don't know the answer. I'm throwing it out there, hoping that some of our really smart listeners will call in. I, I like the extreme candidate. I mean, I like the disruptive candidate, but, but I've got to understand that there's, there aren't enough me's. I mean, I was born a hundred years too late. I'm convinced of that. I mean, if somebody tells the government to go to hell and we're going to do it differently, I mean, where do I send my check? I mean, I want to be on that team, but, but that's a dwindling team. That's not a big team any longer. It's a team and there are members of that team, but there aren't as many as there were. I'll give an example. One of the one of the early phrases I coined that I'm pretty proud of was condition to conformity. I mean, I, I think that's mine. I've never heard it before. I mean, I've I've ripped off others, and others have ripped off me. Join the club. Um, but but condition to conform to me insinuates that I'm just not fighting any longer. I mean, it's not worth it. I mean, if you want to make your life tougher and harder, and you know, and and, and less rewarding, then have at it. I've decided to not confront the government under its terms. It's just too risky, man. I mean, I respect you for doing it, but why would you make your life that complicated, make your life that difficult? And I think that's where we are in America. I think there are so many people who have a belief internally that they don't act upon because it does make their life a lot more complicated. It does invite trouble from Big Brother, and nobody wants trouble from Big Brother. Um I'll share a story with you real quick. So um, got three kids. One of my kids tells me one day, might've been at a tailgate. Um, hey dad, you know, they've got a list somewhere of people that they don't care much for. And I, I mean, I responded a little bit. I mean, I, I knew what he was talking about, but I like it. I said, what kind of list are you talking about? He said a list of people who, you know, just kind of publicly confront the government. You know, there's a list somewhere. Uh, of those who publicly confront the government and they're going to be dealt with at some point in time accordingly. And I, I remember responding, yeah, I mean, I guess there is some list. He said, um, you know, you probably own that list. And I said, ah, probably to some degree. He said, and I won't call the son's name, but he said, um, your other son and I hope you aren't at the top of that list. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. So, so, so my kids in their twenties, early thirties, yeah. I mean, they, they, they genuinely believe that if you confront the government, the government will seek some sort of punitive damage. I mean, they'll come after you. Absolutely, I believe that. You better, you better, I mean, and, and it's kind of like you better be careful. Remember the punitive nature of government? Remember the speeches I've given over and over sure. and over and over and over, the pronouncements about the punitive nature of government, I mean, the, the, the way government shakes people down now. Uh, I ate lunch with a physician a while back, and he said, the one thing you said that I'm most proud of anything you've said it's probably pretty risky. 
when you said, I want to encourage people to be skeptical of your government. That, that's kind of I mean, the, the Carl icons of the world are a dime a dozen now. I mean, there used to be the world used to be full of outlaws and, and characters. And, and now, I mean, my father died. I put something on Facebook. My dad died the day before Thanksgiving, 2004. My dad taught me to not let people push you around, not let the government um, suggest as strongly as they may that you do things a certain way. And here's my concern, guys. Stick with me for a second. My concern is the government's going to get its way and society in general, almost in totality, will be so conditioned to conform that nobody will be able to rear its head. And what they do, Rev, they reward you for conforming. I mean, there are certain rewards for being, you want to be rambunctious and a troublemaker and outlaw, we'll teach you a lesson. But if you behave, I mean, if you stay in the club, yeah, I mean, if you're in the club, if you stand where we say stand and do as we say do and not call out certain things that don't need to be called out, then, then we'll reward you for that. I mean, next thing you know, you've got an appointment. You're on some board, some commission. You've got a big job somewhere. But for you radical rebel rousers, I mean, we're going to deal with you a very different sort of way. And I just think about my father. My father died in 04. And I think my dad sensed that the world was beginning to change. And he didn't like it. I mean, he didn't like the fact that everybody had to be conditioned to get in a box and stay in the box and not speak your mind, not confront things that deserve to be confronted. And I can tell you this, guys, rule makers didn't build America. Rule breakers did. Let me say that again. Rule makers didn't build America. Rule breakers did. Somebody told the king to go to hell. How many people have the guts or gumption now to tell the king that? I mean, the government's kind of our king in some weird way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in some measured yeah. way, they tell you where to stand, how to stand, what to do, when to do it. And those of us who don't, I mean, there's a price to pay as a result of that. I mean, imagine that mindset. Imagine that orthodoxy being a part of our, you know, original colonies. I mean, the mindset of our founders. No, I mean, that's kind of the revolution against that. Bingo. Absolutely. And we're losing that. No, we've lost that. I mean, we're a shadow of our former selves. And why does Apple not speak out against, you know, uh, Chinese totalitarian governance? Because they've got too much to risk. And that's why I love Elon Musk. I mean, Elon's got blank you money, and, and, and he's willing to kind of act upon that. In other words, I'll risk it all. I don't care. I mean, I'm not letting anybody tell me uh, what my soul's worth, my, my conscience is worth, what my uh, desire to see the world operate and function a certain way. And I admire him as much as anybody in this world because Elon's not stupid. And he knew once he chose sides, and the side was with the ones that the government was basically trying to shut down, he knew he'd have a bullseye on his back, and he knew they'd come after him in a way he never imagined. And you got to believe, I mean, he, he may sound surprised that half of his advertisers have walked. He's not. I mean, I can assure you of that. I mean, somebody that bright, that entrepreneurial, I mean, they played out every scenario. So when Elon bought Twitter, I mean, you can rest assured he and his confidants hashed out the scenario of half of his advertisers walking away. Why? Because he was going to allow vigorous discourse. He was going to allow somebody to say, damn the king in modern day terminology. We just don't, we don't have that in us anymore. And I find that so troubling and so concerning. And when it, I said, I asked my wife, I said, Hey, send me a picture of my dad. My wife's got this crazy collection of photos. I mean, she's got a million, I mean, a zillion, everything we've ever done is documented in picture form. And she sent me kind of a shadowy picture of my father kind of a black and white, a little bit out of focus. 
and that's the one I put on. And she sent me, why'd you put that one on? That's who he was. I mean, that's who he was. He didn't take any stuff. It didn't, I mean, he didn't dish it out, didn't dole it, but he certainly didn't take it. And I can't imagine people like that who, who remember the days of being rebellious and it was rewarded. You were rewarded to do things like that. Now you're punished and penalized and basically scared to death to say things that may contradict the preconceived and public narrative. As they conditioned you to conform. Bingo. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken. I got a, a, a good compliment the other day. I had a young person called me a cowboy OG. Uh, I had to figure out what does that mean? I guess I'm a cowboy and I'm an original gangster. Yeah, I heard what the OG. So, I got referred to that, and I thought they were cussing me or something, <laughs> saying something derogatory. It's actually complimentary. You, that, uh, you know, Marshall Tucker Band had a great song, Last of the Singing Cowboys. Uh, my favorite song, I think, of, of, of them. Uh, you talking about the Georgia election. I watched, uh, I'm going to see if I can say this properly. This got, we've got Senator Dr. Warnock, the pro-abortion reverend, community activist slash agitator who turned into a legislator. And I watched Margaret Hoover. She's on PBS. She has a show called Firing Line. I think William Buckley had that years ago. I would encourage anybody to watch this interview with Raphael Warnock. Uh, but it, it just shows you the infatuation. Now he's a senator, and I just showed you all those terms. How can you be a pro-abortion reverend? You either believe in a creator or you don't believe in a creator. Uh, and I'm thinking about Herschel. They're trying to keep Trump out. You know, one thing about Herschel Walker, did Russell Fry play for the New Jersey Generals? No. Um, so we see how Trump can come in the door. Trump and, and, and Herschel Walker have uh, a background together. Uh, and in fact, I watched, um, what's the man, Doug Flutie. He was there when, when they have a background together. Here's what encourages me. Uh, Brian Kemp went to the University of Georgia. Brian Kemp is born in Athens, Georgia. He, he would have been there that whole time with Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker can't help that Ken Art and David are fans of his. Uh, but anything to get away, and think about what I started out with. We've got the senator, doctor, reverend, pro-abortion, community activist turned agitator. That's an industry, my folks. That's an industry, and, and it's all about money to them. Anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. I mean, there's no there's – no, Walker may be an extreme candidate in that he's never served in elected office. He's a former football player. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, whether people say this or not, you know what they're implying? Strong back, weak mind. You know what I mean? Hell of a physical specimen. You know, pro- probably didn't do so well in school. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that, that's the insinuation. I mean, they won't come out and say that because it's racist. It's derogatory. It, it's kind of, um, you know, picking on the jock. I mean, how many the dumb jock? I mean, that's not white or black. That, that's just dumb jock. I mean, you strong back, weak mind. That doesn't imply, you know, a black person or a white person. That's just a kind of a reality. So, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the narrative they're pitching. I mean, this guy's not equipped to go to the Senate. You know, he was real fast and athletic, but, I mean, what does that mean? when it, You know, I, I'm ready for unconventional people to take on the baton. I think Walker is fearless. I mean, I, I just think he's unafraid. I mean, he's not intimidated. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's a fiscal specimen. He's 60 years old and still looks like he could play in the NFL. But that's not my intrigue with Walker. My intrigue with Walker, I mean, there's a little bit of um, support I give to Walker because he doesn't know the way that world works. 
and he's less inclined to succumb to the way that world works. And, and here's my point. I mean, we, we live in an era and an age in American politics. Well, life in general, American society in general, rewards those who conform. Kind of roll over and play dead. I don't want any trouble, man. I mean, you know, like, yeah, I don't like that law. I don't like that rule. I don't like that regulation. But, but I'd rather get along and go along than I had stand for some of these personal virtues that we believe in. See, I'm a believer that there's something inside of our gut. I mean, I think we're conditioned to believe certain things. I think my father and mother had a big influence on me. I mean, obviously they did. But I still think that influence was kind of counter or basically um, partnered with this innered spirit I had. I mean, everybody has it. Jeff has it. I mean, Jeff's is a little bit different than mine. Rev has it. His is a little bit different than mine. But there's something burning in the fire of my belly that leads me to believe certain things are right and other things aren't. And, and Rev and I are not going to ever believe in exactly the same thing because there's a different fire burning in his belly. So you take that natural fire that's burning in your belly and, and you believe in certain things so passionately you, you just want to fight for them. You combine that with these nurturing forces, the, the parents, you know, the, uh, the friends, the, the mentors, the coaches, and I think that's kind of where you end up as a um, kind of a, that's where your opinion. I mean, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you stand for what you stand for? I mean, I think it's this fire burning inside your belly combined with these forces that you've allowed to help shape how you see the world. And that's kind of where you land. But I know a lot of people rev in my world and, I, and I'm, I'm despondent about this. I mean, I'm distraught about it, that there are people in my world who I know have a very similar fire, have very similar forces, but they've chosen to not stand there because life gets complicated when you stand there. You may get a bullseye on your back if you stand there. You may have to face the music if you stand there. And I just think all of our lives are because somebody was willing to stand there. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Feel like I just asked for people's vote. I don't know. Felt like a campaign speech I gave a second ago. Let's go to the phone. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hey, Ashley. Hey, good morning, fellas. Um, You were talking about government being punitive. I don't know if you read the story yesterday where the Oath Keepers leader. Now, I don't agree with Oath Keepers or, or what they stand for, um, not much at all. But he got convicted of sedition yesterday and got 20 years. And he was not even in the Capitol. Now, they locked up and prosecuted 900 January 6 folks. And they're asking for more money to go after more. This guy wasn't he, he never went into the Capitol. Um Seditious he, conspiracy, I think is what he's charged yes, with. Or what convicted with conspiracy. Stuart Rhodes yeah. is his name. Yep, Stuart yep. Rhodes. Yep. You talk about the the punitive government. I get look, he he was part of the leader of their group, but my man never went into Capitol. He was just out there protesting. And I think they're asking for more money to go after just the protesters, not even the people that went in the building. Of course they are. Thank you, Ashley, because you didn't stand where they said stand. You didn't do what they said do. Guys, trust me on this. The Constitution is in place to protect people from its government. The people in government have misinterpreted the Constitution to believe it's to protect government from its people. I mean, I'm not, January 6th is inexcusable. I mean, you don't kick doors down and bust windows. I mean, somebody needs to be held accountable for that. 
but but you know the story of um of Stuart Rose and Oath Keepers. I mean, I, I don't know much about Oath Keepers. I don't get an organization, and I you know I mean I don't I don't hate the government. I don't trust the government. I'm suspe- suspicious of the government. I would encourage you to do and be the same. But um but I mean I'm not kicking a door down and breaking a window. But this guy didn't do any of that. But he was associated. There are a bunch of text messages and people believe he coordinated basically an attempt to overthrow a government. I think it's being, I mean, they're, they're going to make an example out of certain people. And this is the narrative, guys. It's risky to cross your government. That is not America. It should be risky for government to cross its people mm-hmm. in America. The theory of the Constitution, the notion of our self-governance is we're, we're, we're always going to side with the individual, the people deserve the right to express themselves as they see fit. Now, there's got to be limitations to that, and people need to be held accountable for January 6th. But 20 years in jail? Seditious conspiracy? Really? Or teaching a lesson? That's the government teaching people yeah. a lesson. Don't try and that is about as again. damn un-American as anything you could conceive or imagine. And if you believe that that's okay, that that's not eventually a threat to a free and prospering people, then you simply don't understand what our country was founded upon, what its values have historically been, and what the document we really refer to even today to some degree is all about. Let's go to the phone. And, and didn't this this whole thing presume that this group and these groups and these people were there uh, and they were going to overthrow the government with no weapons? Well, I mean, that's seditious conspiracy. I mean, that, that's what it means. That's what it implies, that he was there organizing, masterminding, an attempt to stop the transfer of power. I mean, in essence, that's what they're arguing. He was there, or he was the mastermind behind those who were there in an attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power. That's a pretty bold um, charge to make and conviction, and now he'll go to jail for what? I mean, I think the maximum sentence is 20 years. He'll pull, what, six or eight or 10 years? Wow. Hmm. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Now that the uh, Republicans are getting involved in the uh, ballot harvesting, maybe we'll get some change to come in this voting system because I foresee a general election where you have the Democrat giving 175 million votes and the Republicans giving 168 million votes. And they'll go, oh, wait a minute, because they don't clean up the voter rolls. And like you said earlier, they voted a dead person in office. So if, if dead people can vote for dead people going into office, my, my dear mother, bless her soul, she voted every year up until 2012. And I love her for it, but she died in 2008. And I had to physically go to the voting people and say, look, my mother's dead. Take her off the voting rolls. So it's it's not going to change until it gets so stupid. Because every year we we get communities like Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia, they're voting 125 to 130% of their registered voters. I mean, it's not going to change until that changes. And when they go back and try to see what went on, they don't even keep 
what's mandated by law for 22 months after a general election. They don't keep the records. All but six counties in the United States. So until it gets so ridiculous and the American people stand up and say, no, this is BS, it's going to keep going along the same way. And who knows, there might be 10 million votes in the the Senate race in Georgia. Who who can tell? Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Yeah, but when I see these early voting numbers, and I'm not for voter suppression, I'm not for voter disenfranchisement, and if people are going to the poll and voting, I'm fine with that. I mean, if we're breaking records because people are getting in their car, going to the poll, you know, voting for a candidate of their choice, that is America. That is as American as it gets. It doesn't bother me this the week before the election. I mean, I would rather it be election day. There's something nostalgic about that, something American about that. But I accept that things change and times change. But I'm worried about this absentee balloting and unsolicited mail-in balloting. I don't know how bad it'll be in Georgia because Georgia did a pretty good job of tightening up some of the imperfections of the way we vote. Um, but but once again, I mean, when I ran for office, you had to earn the vote. I mean, you had to go out and message. You had to campaign. You had to poll. You had to... Um, you know, get out the way. Candidate quality matter. All these things mattered in the science of politics. It doesn't matter much anymore. Ballots in, ballots out. How many ballots do we get out, and how many of those ballots do we go get and turn back in to be counted? Let's go to the phone. Scott in Florence. Morning, Scott. Hey, good morning, Ken. Hey, Scott. I wanted to talk about another punitive arm of government, which is um, we recently had a Florence County deputy who was fired for arresting a First Amendment auditor is what they call themselves, guys who go around and film and in some way try to provoke uh, reactions and get hits on a website. And I wanted to see the video of what happened. And in doing so, if you go on Facebook or YouTube, there's a whole uh, cachet of these videos. of, And what you find out if you watch these is the abuse of power by our police and um, their punitive measures, and you see, you see, um, you know, just, just a lot of things that being a white American in the South, I didn't think happened. To be honest with you, because this never happened to me, so I just assumed it didn't happen. And some of these things that you hear are not true. But when you see them caught on videotape, it's another world. And that is—I can tell you from watching—if you watch these videos. The police do not like to be recorded, and they do like to show their hubris and their ego and their pride, and they will harass you and force you to do what they want you to do, and it's something that in our country needs to be addressed, and, and I don't agree with everything these First Amendment auditors do and their, their tactics, but they do uncover a different side of the world than I've ever seen. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate that. Yeah, the bullying force, the bullying nature of government. I mean, if you're a government official, whether it's law enforcement, you're you're in some sort of um, I don't know, Rev. The um, the taxing agencies, you know, the regular the regulatory agencies of our government. I mean, it's always to me the intent was it's a shield, not a sword. I mean, it's to protect you from yourself. We got these regulations, we got these stipulations, we got these bylaws and and statutes and legislation, but but it's it's become weaponized. And, and everybody, I mean, I go back to the days of, of getting a letter from EPA in, in the manufacturing sector. I mean, when you got a letter from the EPA, it'd freak you out. 
I mean, it would it would make you so nervous because you knew there was no good news on the other side of that letter. Once you opened that mail, it was probably some fine or penalty or punishment. And, and it's almost like we've got to a point now that the, the people who work in government, I want to be careful here. I don't want to disrespect people who do a good job in, uh, in government, but it's almost like they've been coached or convinced that it's their job to make sure people do as they should. And they get to decide what you should do or should not do. I mean, we're creating programs around the country that allow government agencies to basically shake down the public. I mean, I'll try to explain this as time progresses, but I mean, there's been about 100 different programs in, in about 30 different states in America that basically empower an agency to shake down a business, to shake down uh, an individual. And I just don't think that was ever the intent. I mean, I just got to believe, and I've said this uh, a bit humorous, but there, there's got to be titanium hinges on the casket at Monticello because there's no way Jefferson believed that that was worth a revolution to empower bureaucrats in government to have autonomy and authority to basically, I mean, it's not innocent to proven guilty. We passed these laws. You better abide these laws. You better know these laws. You better obey these laws. We pass these regulations. You better know these regulations. You better obey these regulations or else. What was the purpose of the 87,000 IRS agents? I mean, the, to, to, to give more government more power. I mean, what else could it be? Enforcement, of course. I mean, of course it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's more of an opportunity to shake down the private sector. And I've said it before, and I'll stick to my guns when I say this. The public sector, whether they intended to or not, at some point in the last 50, 60 years, declared war on the private sector. I mean, that's a pretty extreme statement. But, but look at how many laws and regulations and, and bureaucratic agencies have been created to police the private sector, to make sure the man running the business is doing exactly what the government said he must do. I mean, my problem in politics, you know what my problem was? I spent my money in the way the government said I couldn't spend my money. I mean, think about that. I got thrown out of office, and I paid my, took my medicine. I've done my thing. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm not going, ever going back to get in the middle of that muck. Um, but I decided to spend my money the way I wanted to. And the government said, no, you can't spend your money the way you want to. You've got to spend your money the way we want you to. We allow you to. And I think bureaucrats are good people. They, they probably go to church as much as I do. They love their kid as much as I do. But there's a mindset that there's a mindset of a bureaucrat. And I think the modern-day bureaucrat has been empowered to a point that they believe it's their job to investigate business, to make sure that greedy um, you know, corrupt business guys doing what he's supposed to do. And we're creating more more plans, more programs, more funding, more employees. I mean, look at how big the government is today. Look at how much force it can exude if it chooses to. I mean, are you more afraid of the mafia or business or government? I mean, I'm probably more afraid. I think the mafia's got some morals. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some scruples there. The code. I mean, there's a code. You better believe it. There, there's a code that the mafia goes by. I mean, who do you trust more, the mafia or your government? And I'm not talking about local government, and I'm not talking about state government per se. I'm talking about government in general. And I just think it's un-American. And I think government has, over a period of time, whipped certain people into believing that they just don't want trouble. In other words, knock on the door. I'm from the mob. Knock on the door. I'm from the federal government. I'll open the door to the guy from the mob and take my chances before I would the guy from the federal government, take a break, back in a minute. So I guess the um, the name of this episode of Wake Up Carolina would be Get In Line in Government or Have Trouble. You know, you get in line with the government, things seem to work out. 
quite well. There's a reason Apple, and I think this is so interesting, and this is big-time chess. I mean, this is 4D chess. But there's a reason that Apple has appeared to be sympathetic to the Chinese government. I mean, Apple's one of the iconic brands in American commerce. I mean, there's no question about it. One of the most innovative companies in the history of mankind. You can't deny that. I mean, Steve Jobs was Elon Musk-like when it came to entrepreneur and visionary and taking chances and, and, and being somewhat of a son of a gun, you know, walking to the beat of his own drum. But there's a reason that, um, that Tim, what's his name? Cook. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, has been very guarded in what he says. I mean, it's a, um, it's a company that is, uh, they're cool. You know what I mean? They're, um, they're modern. They're woke. They're um, enlightened. I mean, there are a lot of things to like about Apple. They, they can't like a totalitarian government disallowing its people to freely express themselves, but they've got themselves in a conundrum. Um, the majority of their profitability is because of China. Now, once again, when it comes to, um, to Joe Biden, I believe that Biden is a small-minded politician. Is he morally bankrupt? I don't know. It's part of the bankruptcy because he and his family have made a lot of money by turning a blind eye or, or basically peddling influence of the American government to um, the Chinese government, I can't answer that. I mean, I think I can answer the small-minded politician. I mean, I, there's nothing in Biden's history that shows he's anything mo- more than, you know, c- kind of a hanger-on and uh, a small-minded politician. But is he morally bankrupt because he has gotten wealthy and his family's gotten wealthy because of, you know, peddling influence to the Chinese government? I can't answer that. But it's surely worth um, investigating. Let's go to the phone. David and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hello, David. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Hey, David. Hey, I, I've, I've been listening um, off and on this morning, and just kind of want to go back to what uh, the gentleman from Cross Hill called in, and then also uh, David uh, talk, talking about uh, Warnock and uh, Herschel Walker and then the fact that, you know, Warnock, uh, professes himself to be a preacher and a doctorate and all this other jazz. You know, th- this is a thing, and, and Ken, you can appreciate this. Um, having grown up in the South and grown up watching politics as long as we have, I know as long as I have, because I've always had an interest in it, even at, at a young age, watching how things work. But, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to throw something in the wind here at the end of the show that you probably could, uh, finish talking about tomorrow. But the thing I've never been able to figure out, never, is for African-Americans that, you know, are, are so involved in church and go to church every Sunday and, and you know, uh, believe a certain way and, and have a certain amount of morals. I have no idea, and I, I've never been able to get my arms around how they can vote strict, straight Democrat all the time, all the time. And, and be told what to do every Sunday, or especially around election time, when there's nothing in that Bible that that preacher's preaching out of that supports same-sex marriage, aborting babies, um, transgenderism, none of that. And if you really want to throw something in the wind, interesting with, with Herschel Walker and Warnock, because I, I, I work all over. And having been in Savannah a couple of weeks ago watching TV commercials for Warnock, you'd think he was one of Jesus' disciples. I mean, it was beautifully made. 
So you can tell there's a lot of Hollywood money being poured into this election because people in Georgia, when you look at the state and it's all red, with the exception of the inside of 285, Augusta, Columbus, and Savannah, that ought to tell you everything you know. But if, if you really if you really want to throw something in, into the fire as far as between uh, Herschel and, and Warnock, Herschel ought to ask him in a TV commercial or either ask him in person, say, uh, Reverend Warnock, why don't you explain to me God's plan of salvation? How do you get to heaven? And see the response you get. That'll tell you everything you want to know about Warnock, because all he is is a polished-up tool for the Democrat Party to have another vote for Schumer in the Senate. I appreciate it. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I can't explain that. I mean, you've asked me a question that I've considered since I've kept up with politics. Uh, I ran as a Republican. I've never run as anything but a Republican. I ran for a county chair of the Republican Party. I'm a Republican. I've got issues with the Republican Party. Um, I was actually appointed as kind of an outreach director with the Republican Party and minority uh, voters. The 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 power structure of politics has been able to convince African American voters that the Republicans are the party of the rich man. They don't have your interests at heart. I mean, your plot, your concern, your 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 um your upward mobility, your your prosperity is not going to be advanced by the Republican Party. Um, they've got an issue now because it's hard to paint the Republican Party as the party of the rich person. I mean, it's a populist party. It's America first. They're they've um that they've really done well with working class people, white and black. Um, but but once again, as political observers, and the caller said he's been keeping up with it probably longer than I have. We want things to happen now. We can't explain this. It doesn't make any sense. So it, it needs to be changed. I, I believe that political behavior is generational. And I do believe that if the, if, if the Republican Party stays committed to the America First agenda, a pro-worker, pro-family, pro-America agenda, eventually that 10% turns into 14. That 14 turns into 18. That 18 turns into 25. And, and, if, and if, if, if Republicans get 25% of the African-American vote, about 60% of Democrats lose their job. I mean, that's a staggering statistic. If, if Republicans get 25% of the African-American vote, 60% of Democrat wow. office holders lose their job. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.